0: Hi, welcome to the podcast. I am Joe Posnansky and with me, delightfully, is actress Ellen Adair. Ellen, welcome.
1: Thank you for having me, Joe. You
0: are so welcome. And former big league pitching great, Brandon McCarthy. Brandon, welcome. Hi, Joe. How are you? I am doing, uh, you know what? I, I don't even know why we say that anymore. i I'm doing okay, I guess. We're holding up. We're, you know what? We're doing great. We're healthy. Uh, we're together as a family. Uh, we're holding up. How are you guys doing, Brandon? How are you doing? I'm bored. Very,
2: <laughs> very, very bored. <laughs> I was. I, I mean, I've been preparing for this for for years. We're, we're a pretty insulated family. We are. We can do a long time with this, I think, and it's not really too terribly different from our regular schedule. But it's like it's the the lack of choices has set in, and now about in the last four days, I've gotten I've gotten pretty stir crazy.
0: Yeah, yeah. Ellen, how are you? You're in New York. How are you? How are you doing there?
1: I am on top of the world because wow. I decided that I was going to say that I'm on top of the world. I mean, I obviously I'm I'm really worried about the people who are on the front lines of this the healthcare workers and honestly like the grocery store workers and the delivery people and the people who in a way like don't have the luxury of staying home and i'm also worried about the fact that like basically everybody that i know doesn't have a job but i'm hopeful that someday i'm going to be able to actually get through on the um new york department of labor website <laughs> And, uh, and yeah. So for me personally, I feel like with everything that's going on, I don't get to complain because yeah, I'm just at home and I, I like Brandon. I feel like I was actually, I was maybe raised for this. I am not yet bored. Uh, I don't feel like I'm in any imminent danger of being bored. I was raised pretty much to always entertain myself. I I have I have half siblings who are a lot older than me, but I was like functionally an only child and traveled a lot with my parents. And the rule was just that I, I had to entertain myself and not complain. And uh, so I'm very good at entertaining myself. I have like 12 projects and uh, nowhere near the end, uh, end of any of them.
0: Well, see, but see, but Brandon, this is, this is the deal with Ellen. Ellen grew up without television. Like she, they literally did not have a television in their house because she grew up in an Amish family. Actually, no, she (laughs) grew up in an academic family, which is kind of the same thing. And, and it's the same. And uh, yeah, I mean, in, in some ways, this is great. Ellen can finally catch up with the rest of us on television. I think that's really, that's really what, what this is all about. Are you watching yeah. a lot of TV, Ellen? Are you? Are you watching a lot of television?
1: I'm I'm watching some television. I'm actually not watching more television than I usually do. Um, maybe even I'm watching less television than I usually do because uh, we have been watching more movies. But the way, you know, because I grew up without television, I don't know how to consume it on a sort of binging basis i just i have you know i i have my day and i do all of the things and then the treat of the day is at the end of the day i get to watch like an hour of television say so sometimes the treat has just been oh we get to watch a movie and a movie is longer than that but so well,
0: that is good yeah. that is good brandon are you watching a lot of television or are you are you netflix binging no i mean
2: i i've gotten way back into the to the west wing i hadn't really finished it so i'm finishing that run through now and so i'm i'm currently uh, that's good um obsessed with that, but I'm not watching a ton. I the whole the whole day is just structured around our little one. She's four, so she's got the backyard to bomb around in and so we can swim and do do lots of things and then I'll just I don't know, I find I just kind of I just find that I'm sitting a lot and I'm yeah. not really necessarily doing anything. So you're just kinda of like turned off without I'm not really watching TV, i V I'm not really doing anything. So the only thing I'm actually watching is the West Wing for an hour and a half at night and, and that's really about it.
0: So, so let me ask you this about about your pool uh, that you that you have in the backyard there with uh, with uh, with your little one um, you're in Phoenix you guys have like pool coolers there right am, am I right about this no you don't like, like I, I know, I
2: know people I'm supposed in to do Phoenix. The, I'm supposed to
0: do a yes and but I had nothing for that other than I don't know what a... <laughs> so you've never so you've never even heard of that where like like I've heard that the water is so ridiculously hot um, in Phoenix that you really need to actually air condition your own pool. Yeah.
2: That's, yeah, that's midsummer. I mean, right now it's like 75, 80 out. So it's for these next, this next month, this next two months, even it's perfect. Like we actually have the heater on right now because it actually get, we'll get too cold, but come July, if you're, if you're still here, then a lot of people struggle to even swim in that. Cause it just super heats during the day. So you're just like getting into a hot tub and it doesn't really cool you off, but I haven't heard of actual pool coolers. Which I it could, okay. could be a thing. I just I don't think that we have one.
0: I I think it's a thing. I I maybe I'm totally wrong about that. And uh, frankly, it doesn't matter if I'm right or wrong. It it really it's irrelevant. It should but, exist. Let's just say that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There, do you guys do Phoenix year round? Are you guys like like you you endure the 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 summers? You do that? No. We I mean, obviously I haven't had to do that as a player. But there's a
2: Flagstaff is two hours away from from our door, so we ended up. We kind of we found a place there um, a couple of years ago. We knew that this was going to be our full time home, and um, we had been here through through two summers when I played here, and we knew kind of what a Phoenix summer was like, and that it was going to be a little bit of a grind. So we do get to escape for a little bit in the summer and um, go up, and we we've got a little place that we can we can share with friends, family, do different things, and and just kind of get out of this for a little while. So that's last year was our first chance we got to do that, and so we really. Really enjoyed that. And then we'll start to travel a little bit if, if the life ever returns to normal. And, uh, but being here, not being here is really priority one. Cause it, after about two to three weeks of it being over 108 every day, you just, you just break.
0: Yeah. And no, I, I, I just couldn't, I, I, Ellen, could you do Phoenix? Could you live in Phoenix?
1: I I might be uniquely suited to living. Actually, that's honestly, I run extremely cold. (laughs) I mean, probably I would at one hundred and eight. I would be like, yeah, this is this is hot. Like, I think I'll go inside or maybe sit in the shade. But yeah, it tends to need to be in the like upper nineties for me to feel like it's hot. Alan is
0: not exaggerating about this, Brandon. I I have literally been with Alan when it was. in the 90s i would say in the 90s certainly maybe even the high 90s but certainly the mid 90s where she literally has reached into her little bag that she carries with her everywhere and pulled out like a sweater it's like, it's like like yeah it's a little it's a little chilly in the shade in the shade in this 98 it's it's really striking ellen you might walk into 108 degrees and go this is exactly right this is exactly <laughs> what human temperature should be
1: I'm sure for a minute I would feel that way. Like, yeah. Or, or you know, maybe even five. I would be like, oh, this is great. Like this, this sensation that is unknown to me of being hot. This is what people have been talking about this whole time. Oh, my God. Yeah.
2: That's the problem it's, with eating. So like 108 feels for the first few days, you're like, oh, this isn't that bad. I think I can take this. And then you realize it's been 108 for the last two weeks. And that means it's only about to get bad. That means a week from now, it's 118. For every day and then use three straight weeks where it never gets under 110 and at nighttime it's still 99 on the pavement and you're just like okay i i can't like you when you can't escape it that's when it becomes it's like kind of like seasonal affective disorder you see in other parts of the country but you see people in phoenix the people who stay here like you're just kind of like walking zombies like it's all anybody talks about like how about this heat how about this heat what do we what do you like it, it's too much like we all know this is an affront to god to live here so let's. We got to
0: talk about something else. <laughs> We're going to talk about uh, all right. So here's here's the thing that I that I want to do. All right, and I actually want to ask each of you how you're holding up in this world without sports, and and obviously that's a that's a big topic here, and it's a and it's a tough topic because you know who cares? I mean, there's so many bigger things going on, and yet. Um, Are we, you know, they've, they've, they're continuing to try to play a lot of old games, you know, MLB, um, uh, the, the app now gives you the option to watch, I guess, any game you want from the last two years, which is, you know, which is okay. It's nice of them to do that. Um. How are you guys holding up? I mean, like are, like are, is there enough old sports to like watch to to keep any interest at all, or have you already hit a breaking point?
2: I I I haven't watched very much at all. Um I don't know. I I watched some of that um that crazy was it it was the the Cubs game from years ago. Um yeah,
0: the Phillies Cubs. The Phillies Cubs, yeah, yeah.
2: I watched a little yeah. bit of that, and most of that is just kind of like not even watching for the game. It was just kind of nostalgia watching, just like that guy's clearly throwing 74 miles an hour. And then (laughs) I watched some of the Tuffy Rhodes game and a little bit of some of the the playoff games that were good, but still only in snippets. And it's not like it's appointment viewing. It's just like I sat down and waiting for my wife to come in the room so we could watch West Wing. I turned that on for about 20, 30 minutes, but I don't know. I I haven't thought too much about sports because it's just not there and what's the point, but I I could desperately use – a golf tournament, just something that's running for four days that I could just go check into for four or five hours at a time and follow it over time. But that's about the only thing that I am truly like kind of jonesing for right now.
0: How about you, Alan?
1: Well, I have watched a few baseball games, but I found that they're really, they're just sort of on there to soothe me, to just have this sense of like, you know, this lulling, background noise that i'm like yeah 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 like i'm i'm watching a baseball game i'm totally watching a baseball game um i watched the you know the the bryce harper grand slam that the phillies broadcasted on opening day and then i decided um because i think that they had re-aired it on tv in philly and so people were talking about it i re-watched uh roy halliday's perfect game in miami sure and uh, you know, and then some Red Sox friends were talking about rewatching 2004, so I watched a couple of those ALCS games, and it's interesting to me that it's just not the same without wow. the anxiety. Like it's it, it is definitely comforting for me to have it on, and it's enjoyable to watch them again, especially if I like you know the game is old enough that I don't remember every single thing that happened, but it's sort of the metaphor I thought of was it's like a cloth mother, which is a thing from my uh, psychology class that I was remembering a couple of, I don't know, maybe it was even a month ago, but it feels like a lifetime, of course, in which a uh, a baby monkey, de- like devoid of an actual mother, put into a room with like a cloth covered monkey and then a wire monkey will gravitate to the cloth monkey even though they are both not an actual monkey mother so yeah like going to the the baseball games of old it just feels sort of like a cloth cloth monkey you know I'm just like snuggling with it but it doesn't yeah it's it's sort of like when when I'm devoid of actually the stress of of being like oh my god are they gonna win it's not quite the same
2: that is one hell of an analogy that was, i mean <laughs> well, it was tight. what it's what we we're all thinking but you you got it was okay. like... i was
1: thinking of it because in a conversation with my dad i had decided that wire monkey is my metaphor for mike pence <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So um that was why the whole story was brought up to me. I was trying to find the the fitting thing to describe Mike Pence and I decided wire monkey was that thing like, you know, if if uh, if a monkey were put in a room with Mike Pence and a cloth monkey, the monkey would snuggle with the cloth monkey instead.
0: I I think the thing that gets me um just about trying to 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 you know, go back and look at these sports is like the, whatever the joy was of going back in 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 previous you know in our previous life when when the world was was still running, um, you go back and look at old sports, and it felt um, comforting because it wasn't it didn't matter you know I mean it was like there was real sports also going on so if you wanted to sort of like step out. Of the real sports world and go back in and, and, uh, and, and see, you know, whatever Roy Halladay's, you know, uh, perfect game or, or you wanted to see uh, Roger Federer when, you know, Wimbledon and in, in sometime in the two thousands or, or you wanted to watch tiger when, you know, his, his first uh, masters or whatever it was, it felt nostalgic. It felt great because you know what? There was real stuff happening and, and you know, there was a part of you that's like, oh, this is great. I can just kind of go back and revisit. Now, to me, I see those games and, and they feel almost like, I don't know, they're almost depressing to me because it's almost like they're saying, yeah, we're, this is all you get. This is, this is, this is everything at this point there. There's no, there's nowhere else for you to turn except to go back and watch something that you already saw. And I I just can't get into it at all. I, I, I just find it. I don't know. It's, 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 I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm desperate to find something that will, you know, look, I, we all know it's going to be a while before, before there are real sports, but I'm desperate for something that'll, that'll feel sports oriented and still feel positive and new. And, and, and I just, I just don't know where to turn for that.
2: It's all just, it's so pretend. It's like when you're in the bathroom and you don't have your phone and you're reading something, the back of some box and you're like, I don't care about what I'm reading. It's like, it just, I would give anything else to not be reading the back of whatever this is. And so you're just like, I'm not really into it. I'm not tuned in. I don't care. I, that's what I, and I, one thing I've found is I don't, they keep airing the games almost as normal, so you get the commercial breaks. And that's where I, I give up after about two or three innings, even of <laughs> something I'm watching. Because it's like, I can't, every six minutes I'm sitting through a commercial break. Which is okay when I'm watching a baseball game, because I want to see what happens next. And so we're going to see this through. But when I'm watching, even though I, I, they played uh, Randy Johnson's 20 strikeout game the other day, through the first four innings, and I'm kind of captivated because he was just so dominant. And Ridiculous. then it was oh. like, oh, commercial here comes a commercial, and then finally, it just like my brain is so wired now. To, if I don't want to watch commercials, I don't have to watch commercials. It was like, okay, let's do anything else, and so I just left the TV, and that was it. And uh, <laughs> it doesn't speak well of my discipline, but
0: no, no, I think that's right. I I totally think that's right. I think if if like a movie, like an older movie, came on that you really like that you, you don't love it, it's not like one of your all time favorites, but a movie that you like comes on. Uh, you might watch it. You're not watching it through the commercial. Like yes. as soon as as soon as that commercial comes on, you're like, all right, look, I I was perfectly happy to watch Kramer versus Kramer, but I'm not I'm not watching it through a commercial. I mean it's it's I've seen it. You know, and that's I, I think that really does hit upon something that that feels so empty about about uh, you know, old sports. And and I don't I don't have any ideas of what to do. Uh but I do think that the itch it was supposed to scratch, for me, uh, it really doesn't. Alan?
1: Well, a, a couple of things. I mean, I think that, first of all, uh, I've been watching these games on YouTube and there aren't commercials, yes. so that's a blessing. Um, and I think that it's particularly because, and I I imagine that across the world people are having this uh, particular issue of the oddity of watching people touch and interact on yeah. TV yeah. is yeah I'm always like guys that's not say oh my god that's way too many people <laughs> in that room what, what are they doing and it's particularly bad for commercials because yes. commercials are trying to sell you something right and like I've always known and I'm very thankful to have done many of many commercials but I think maybe because of that I've always been uh, extremely aware of the like weirdness that a commercial is selling you is like okay this person is actually the mother of this person and they actually live in this house when like none of that is true and all of it is just so that you believe that these like paper towels are better than other paper towels sorry about the siren in the background by the way that is totally just the way that it is in my neighborhood because yes i live next to elmhurst hospital anyway um so it is particularly strange now when all the commercials are advocating is the thing that I absolutely fundamentally refuse to do, which is like go out and be a good consumer, you know? So like watching a CVS commercial, I'm like, no way. No way am I going into that CVS. Look at all those people. They're smiling at each other. They're insane. They shouldn't even be there. <laughs> so, I mean, I think that that's why, yeah, having having commercial breaks is definitely like insult to injury. And um, actually, you know... We deserve to just tune out of them. It's so. I was, um, uh, oh,
0: sorry, Joe. I was going No, I was gonna say. I've actually read. Um, uh, I read a story about it that that businesses are are getting incredibly um, angry feedback from people who are seeing commercials where people are not social distancing. I mean, they're just yep. that it it really is sort of it's it's a crushing thing to see. I mean, you just see like you know like people out on dates, like in restaurants or something and, and, and holding hands. And you're like, what are you do? Are you out of your mind? I mean, you know, and, and I, I do think that it has like an actual impact on the mind.
1: I recognize that it's a catch 22 because they can't very well um, make new commercials with no. people <laughs> no, standing <they> <laughs> six feet away because there's no way to, to make anything to film anything right. in which people are always standing six feet away. So
0: no, it's, a, you can't fix it. But at the same time if it's if it's hurting you as a business, you might want to stop running it that's you know true. I mean that's, yeah. I mean that's that's really what it is Brandon yeah, the,
2: the, one of the business partners in the in the soccer team that I have actually he, he runs a large marketing agency and he just brought that up in, in one of our calls yesterday and I thought it was fascinating He said that right now if you have commercials running with people touching or too close together um, they are losing the brands that have that are losing like 50 percent of their um, at worst, 50% of their brand favorability ratings um, just because of that and nobody knows what to do with it because all those commercials are bought and paid for. Um, they've all been filmed way in advance. They don't have anything else they can create right now. So nobody knows whether you just power through it and just and keep going or do you just kind of, do you pull them off? Nobody, I, I thought it was a fascinating psychological thing. It was it was really interesting that Ellen brought that up that it's a very real thing in the marketing world right now. It's
0: Wild. This
2: is. I guess we
1: could have a lot of cartoon commercials, maybe. Or, those, know, those, those cartoons oh, The general, right now, those is
0: killing it. There's no question. <laughs> it, just no. That that general. He just slides right into that car with strangers. He doesn't care. He doesn't. If make... I have
1: to look at that ColaGuard box one more time, I'm gonna lose it.
0: <laughs> it's not good. All right, that Brandon. You brought so this up earlier, and I think this is very important because you were talking about that uh, Phillies uh, Cubs game, and uh, which you know if. If for those of you that don't know, what, what was the final that 2221, I guess? And uh, it was the one Mike Schmidt hit uh, four home runs in and and uh, and and I think maybe Dave Kingman hit three or so. it was it was a wild game. But you made you made a point about that that I think is is crucial. And 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 it is this if Brandon McCarthy, as he was as a big league pitcher uh, pitched in the 1970s. How good? How good would Brandon McCarthy have been?
2: Uh, he still would have been probably hurt a lot, and so I don't know that that changes. Um, I think probably pretty good. Um, your
0: stuff would have your stuff would have like stood out. Like I mean, not to say that it didn't.
2: Yeah, but I think my late career stuff, like when I started throwing a lot harder, would have would have probably stuck out. And being able to move the, like the fastball three different ways, like I think there just would have been a totally different. So it just would have been kind of what they were doing, which was sort of—I mean, it was—they were movement, location, and I was doing that just with probably like expanded stuff or or stuff that was a little bit more optimized to work off itself. And I don't know—I always wonder that. My, actually, Amanda asked me that the other day: "What generation would you have liked to have gone back to?" And I—that's a tough question because in the '20s, I got paid nothing. So otherwise, I'd <laughs> like to do that because you feel like, oh, it's, I would have been a hall of famer. But otherwise, um, I, I think I would have been pretty good.
0: I totally see you in the 70s. Look, I watched a game. Uh, this is, you know, years ago, but it was a Vern Rule game. Vern Rule pitched in in uh, free pitch for the Astros. And it was it was might have been a, his playoff game. I uh, in 86 maybe. I can't remember when it was. And Vern Rule was a pretty darn good pitcher. I mean, he was pretty effective. His fastball was topping out at seventy-eight miles an hour at <laughs> most. Honestly, at mo- you you if you see a fastball that actually has like a hump to it, yes. like that, that tells you that is not moving very fast. And yet, you know, hitters with those first of all, hitters weighed one hundred and seventeen pounds each in in those days, and they used these like toothpick bats yep. uh, that they choked, choked dope dope up on. on. Yes. <laughs> There's, Alan, let's let's figure out what would like so we we're putting we're putting Brandon McCarthy uh, at his at his prime so would you by the way for Brandon would you want your prime to be when you were throwing harder sort of later in your career
2: yeah i think i mean knowing that that generally leads to more success like if i could do it when i was throwing harder but pre yips that would probably be optimal for me <laughs> i would i would take that
0: <laughs> all right so pre yip hard throwing Brandon McCarthy we're putting him in 1970 Let's say 76. I think that was the year that Greg Nettles led the American League with 32 home runs. Um, How good is he? What do we think? 20 game winner? 25 game winner? How good do we think Brandon McCarthy is?
1: Oh, yeah. uh, Yes. I mean, I don't. It's hard to go. I'm going to go 25. Yeah. (laughs) It's hard to go more than that. But yes, I think that, you know, that cutter is just going to be completely dominant.
0: Brandon, you think 25, 25 and eight with like a 2.73 ERA. Don't you think like that, that seems like you could, you would have had to throw 340. Yeah, innings.
2: that's I mean, where I've been. Gonna, that's going to be the struggle <laughs> there. Like, and then the velocity is going to come way down with those innings. And I, I don't The other, I mean, the other, like I could do that for five, six innings or, I mean, six, seven, eight every once in a while as you're going, but like the conditioning was so different. So if, you know, if I'm coming off after, 6 innings and 105 pitches and I'm like, "Well, that's about it for me." And they're like, "No, you got 3 more innings. That's you've just really kind of gotten started." And you're wearing wool and it's 110 out. So um and you haven't eaten anything but a hot dog and beer in the last 3 weeks. So like you need to I, then I bet the velocity comes off pretty quick and all of a sudden that fastball at the hump looks pretty good to me <laughs>
0: <laughs> i, I I'm, I'm not seeing it I, I think you we're, we're taking you at your prime so you've you've been given the advantages that that they were not given in the in the 70s you are you are a well-conditioned athlete uh nobody had seen an a pitcher as tall as you don't you think I mean like that's well, maybe, this yeah. is Pre Randy Johnson, so so this is J.R. Richard. Your, I mean,
2: J.R. Richard is probably a good like. I mean, that would have been he was six 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 seven. Yeah, yeah right mean, he there. was
0: he was huge, and J.R. Richard threw a lot harder yeah. than any human. So uh yeah, he was six eight actually. So. Um yeah, but you know what? J.R. Richard was pretty good. He was unbelievably I'm just good. Saying, yeah, I'm, saying that, I'm not saying you're as, you'd be as good as J.R. Richard, uh, but J.R. Richard also had a little bit of the yips, especially younger J.R. Richard. The the real sad part of J.R. Richard, if people want to go to his baseball reference page and, and, and check out uh, you know, one of the all time greats, um, he really was. You know, like there, there are like there are people, I mean we all know what a terrible tragedy it was that Thurman Munson uh, you know, died, you know, so young and in that plane crash. But if you're talking purely from a baseball perspective, Thurman Munson was on the downslope of his career. Um, J.R. Richard was not. J.R. Richard was absolutely like hitting his peak as a pitcher. So uh, it's really, really very, very sad that, that he didn't. But I, I sort of see you as like a taller catfish hunter that's sort of how i view you you like you just you're moving the ball in and out and and uh um you know you threw harder probably than catfish hunter did but catfish hunter in 1974 was 25 and 12 led the league with a 2.49 era had a 9.86 whip because nobody could hit um I, i'm thinking that's you i'm thinking that's that's your game he struck out 143 guys in 318 innings wow. by the way yeah, yeah, that was the other thing in those days. You you just didn't strike people out. That's the
2: thing I would days. I would love to, if I could go back and just throw a few games just to see. Um, I mean, you know that you can knock the bat out of most of their hands, but most of them are okay with that. <laughs> and so, like, would it have been, because it, it's not like it was Garrett Cole stuff where Garrett Cole could strike out anybody in any area and nobody could do anything about it. Like, would I have been able to, to still get a bunch of punch outs knowing what I know, or would it have been, like, just sort of a frustrating facing, like, the early, the late 2000s, like, Angels lineups where it felt like you couldn't strike anybody out. But um, I don't know. That, that would have been really interesting.
0: This is this is a really, really uh, – I love the way that, that this goes because uh, this leads to your question, Alan, which is, do you believe that if hitters – if the entire focus of baseball was to not strike out, okay – let's say that that the shifting of the game because I, I think that that is how a lot of people looked at the game and you know and it wasn't the entire focus but home runs were not you know for for 80 to 90% of the players home runs were not even a part of your attack your your attack was put the ball in play and and hit for some some decent average by getting enough ground balls to go through uh, i mean that that was most of the players that's what they did so my question is even with the players, uh, the pitchers stuff today with your Garrett Coles and your Noah Syndergaards and and and, and uh, Aaron Nolas and all the rest. Um, if the hitter's entire purpose was to not strike out, would they not strike out?
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I'm sure that obviously there would still be some strikeouts, but yes. I mean, yeah, obviously. I think obvi- there would be maybe more pop-ups. You know, yeah. and yeah. and there are obviously plenty of balls dying in the outfield right now, even as it is. But yeah, I mean, if you're if your only goal is not necessarily like must get on base, but just like don't strike out. Yeah. Then you're just going to try to hit that last ball um, that I mean, strike um, that you're <laughs> <laughs> that so that you don't strike out, even if you just make poor contact with it.
0: You agree with that, Brandon?
2: Yeah, I still think some of the craziest guys would have racked up an unbelievable, I think like the the Garrett Cole, Chris Sale, I think like they become they're like they're optical illusions. It's not so much like yeah. a decision to swing and miss. It's that you literally can't do anything else because the pitch doesn't doesn't give you any information above <laughs> like, I hope you missed it. Like it it just um you know, I kinda told you about we have there's there's virtual reality now that that are in clubhouses that'll, that some teams have access to. And so you can put any pitcher in there. It takes their actual, like, all the metrics of their pitch. And so, like, you're actually there facing them in the box. You see, it literally looks like you're just actually in the stadium facing them. And so you can you can face those pitchers over and over and over again and make swing decisions. And it's really fascinating. And as I, so I kept loading up some of the best pitchers in the game and the amount of them that you can't, that you just can't see anything. You would just swing because that came right down the middle. was a fastball. It wasn't even close to that. Like You would have just swung and missed. And so you, you could choke up and you could sit there and you'd probably hit more foul balls and probably you might knock off maybe one to two strikeouts a game. But there'd also be guys that would just get obliterated because you're kind of on it and then the stuff is just too good. Like Randy Johnson would have been... Like You can just see in the games that he's pitching... I mean a lot of those guys aren't trying to strike out, they're just trying to make contact and they just it's just, oop, that wasn't a fastball, that was a slider, it almost hit me in my back foot, but I didn't know it until I had already started to swing. And I think that's um I think for a lot of us the the mid to like the low to mid to the just below the upper tier, their strikeouts would have fallen off immensely. But for the elite guys, I think those would kind of stay.
0: So that's so for you, the stuff that makes it impossible to hit a ball is the fact that you have no idea what it is. Like that is, would you say that is the sort of the supreme factor? I mean, there's, you know, there's obviously there's, there's speed and then there's, there's the, you know, the movement and all these other things. But would you say that the supreme factor in, uh, in, in being able to hit the the ball is that you have absolutely no idea what's coming
2: that and that the fact that as the pitch is coming, it still doesn't give any information as to what it is, right. and so then it does something drastically different um, than a fastball. Because most all all hitters are trying to hit off the fastball, so that's what you set your timing to. That's where you set your eyes, and then the ball does something off of that. That so if it doesn't give itself up in any way, the curveball doesn't bounce, if you don't, or hop out of the hand, if you don't see some spin on the slider or some change in the release or something in the arm speed for a changeup, you have nothing to go off of and. Unless you just get lucky or just adjust last second, um, you typically don't make contact, and, and I think that's that's the biggest thing. That I've I don't know if we've ever talked about it on here, but Johan Santana used to tip ninety percent of his pitches. I mean, you you went into games, and <laughs> I will never forget um, a game sitting on the bench. We're in Minnesota, and we had every single pitch, and this was all of us on the bench as we just sat there. He would just he'd come, he'd wind up, he'd go, and we would go change up. And you knew that every hitter went into the box He threw a complete game shutout against us with a bunch of punch-outs. I mean, it wasn't even a fair fight. And it just goes to show you how good the deception on his changeup up was. was. Even if you knew it was coming, your eyes still couldn't believe it, what it was being told, and so you just can't hit it. And so that's hmm. that's what a good pitch is, that it, it just doesn't give itself up, even if you know it's coming.
0: Wow. Wow. I love that. I don't think you actually told me that story about Santana. That is... I think that's probably similar to Pedro, although Pedro didn't tip uh, his pitches, I would guess. Um, but that to me is has always been one of the most fascinating parts of, of hitting is how devastating the changeup is. Like a really, really, really great changeup. Um, just how devastating that is. It blows my mind. I mean, these guys are the best hitters on earth and the ball is coming in. And it's moving, of course, but it's coming in at you know i mean not batting practice speed but it's coming in at a significantly if, if 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 they could time that they would hit it with with some great consistency and yet because of the arm action because of everything else uh just having that it I, I don't know that just blows my mind that that can be such a devastating
2: pitch yeah it's just it's the ultimate pitch that lies to the eye so it's such a an advantage pitch if you can get it it's why so many pitchers obsess over trying to get a changeup and and you see a lot of guys that end up turning in high, Hall of Fame caliber careers that ends up becoming their best pitch. Like CC Sabathia was known for his slider, and then yeah. for the l- longest time it became his changeup. And Chris Sale's slider is absolutely disgusting, but his changeup is what really <laughs> screws you up because now you've it looks just like the fastball except it's not that speed and then you think it might be a slider. Like, it ends up creating so many problems in the eyes of the hitter and the mind that it um, you can never quite figure it out because it doesn't, if you don't slow down your arm, nothing tells you that it's coming.
0: Ellen, are we just learning so much about baseball? Isn't this
1: awesome? Yeah, we're learning so much about baseball.
0: (laughs) No, I mean, it's, it's, it really is cool. I, I, like I say, I mean, it's, it's funny because, you know, people throw the change up in so many different ways, obviously keeping it, you know, the circle change is different from, from, you know, the grip is, is different from, for various different, you know, people, but yet, the skill that it takes to throw a change up is like, it's, it's like, it's like touch, right? I mean, isn't it, is, wouldn't you say it's a little bit like being, you know, a great putter or something like there's, there's like a, there's, there's something that is, that is very, very difficult. Like, I don't know if you would be able to see a young pitcher and say, oh yeah, someday that guy's going to have a great change up. I mean, is that, is that something you think you can scout? That's a, or do that's, you have to scout I, the pitcher? That analogy itself?
2: I've never heard in that actually the being a good putter is probably at like, you can get the mechanics of everything down and be a good putter and you learn how to read greens. But like, if you just don't have that internal sense of whatever it takes, yeah, that's actually a really good uh, comparison. But no, I actually, that's a, it's a thing that I look for personally when I look at young pitchers or if someone already has an advanced changeup at a younger age, I take that because it, you look for, if you can spin the ball, if the spin rate's high on a breaking ball, you know that we can reshape that. Right. You can generally turn that into something um, that's workable and, but yeah, you can't tell a changeup. So the ability to not spin the baseball um, is what we're finding with, with data now. Like a low spin rate on a changeup tends to be good um, for the most part. So guys that can naturally do that, then you know you've, you've probably got something there. But yeah, it is an interesting work backwards as opposed to working forwards the way you do with a, with a breaking ball.
1: Yeah, well, so and I think that was the case with with, you know, my personal favorite Aaron Nola, that his changeup was so good in high school that they were actually like, OK, let's just uh, let's just put a lid on that for right now. And let's work on your curveball. And so when he sort of like brought his change up back in, everybody was like, oh, my God, look at this devastating pitch. But that was he always had such a good feel for it.
0: I've always loved when they do that, by the way, uh, in general, not not specifically just with the changeup, but like in the minors. When they just take away your best pitch, right, in order to try to get you to do other things. Do you think that's really helpful to, to do that? I think
2: sometimes. I, I think it really depends on the pitcher. And I, I, um, they, they've been doing it with changeups for years. And obviously, there's been tons of like almost everybody in Instructs and spring training as a minor leaguer has gone on like forced changeups and you have to throw it in certain counts. And um, I think it sometimes I think it can lead to some stun of development because you just want guys to be successful and some guys break through it. I don't know that it actually increases. Yeah. I don't, I don't think I have a good answer. It would be very much a pitcher by pitcher basis. Some you can see you're going to get it and some you can see you're going to do this for the next eight months and their changeup will come out of it. No better. It still won't be a good pitch. You just kind of wasted time in developing other pitches, I guess.
0: Yeah. I don't know, Ellen. To me, it's like, if, if somebody said to you as a young actor, um, all right, we're taking uh, drama away from you. In order you just have to literally do nothing but comedy for the rest of your, you know, minor league uh, stands. I, I don't know. Would that work?
1: Would that be effective? I think it would be great. <laughs>
0: <laughs> this is we and should it, do this in all fields. Field. Just yeah, take well, things I mean, away from people.
1: The thing is for actors that would be like, provided that you get to do the comedy, if all of a sudden somebody was like, Okay, you only get to audition for comedy and you can't also book you know, a TV (laughs) drama, then that would be harder because A, there's like way fewer comedies shooting in New York. But yeah, you'd be taking away half of what I could potentially book. But if you were like, yeah, all right, you're not allowed to do drama anymore. We're going to put you on this sitcom for four years. I would be like, awesome. Yeah, I'm going to get good at that.
0: No, but you're missing what I want to do, which is turn all of like uh, acting into like a baseball minor league system so that basically like somebody would draft you Uh, obviously in the first round and then they would send you and you would have to do dinner theater in like, in like uh, you know, bend Oregon or something. And then they would, and then they would take like comedy away from you and, and you would have to, you would have to do nothing but, but uh, uh, nothing but tragedy, in, you know, and you'd move up, you know, you would, you would be able to move up and and eventually, you know, you'd be in Topeka and then you would go to Des Moines and then you would, you know, and and eventually, you know, you'd get up to Charlotte, you'd be up to AAA and, and, and they would give you all of your stuff back. You could do everything in, in Charlotte. uh, And then you come to the big time. I, I think that, that minor leagues, uh, would work better if every in every sport. And every I would love that. Yeah, <laughs> free walk. Because then life. I get to
1: act every day. It's Like I would get to be in it. You know. So yeah, I'll I'll definitely take that. I mean, of I course. sort of feel like being being a non union actor was kind of like my time in the minor leagues. Um, and I did you know work a lot at that time because there's yes. so much available. Like I could do non union theater and I could work as a non union actor in union theaters. But yeah, I'm all for it. Somebody draft me.
0: I think it would be great. Of course, you would get paid nothing. Like that's part of the deal, apparently, in in the minor leagues. So that apparently, you would yeah. you would get paid uh, absolutely nothing. Uh, all right, we've got a couple of uh, Twitter questions that we want to get to, and then uh, and then uh, there's actually a new. I, I'm starting a new feature on the podcast. I uh, I did an interview with uh, Eric Nussbaum, whose new book "Stealing Home" is uh, fantastic. So we have a short interview with him. I'm going to try to do an interview each week with, uh, with somebody, uh, who's written a book or, or done something, uh, you know, in the entertainment world that, uh, that might be fun for people to, uh, to, to do while we're all stuck in, in, uh, in our homes. But anyway, let's, before we get to that, let's, let's, uh, do some questions. Uh, Alan Clements, who is our, uh, official, uh, podcast statistician, uh, has a question for you, Alan. Uh, he would like to know if you, if you would object if he gets a t-shirt made with your don't be a hero cheer on it.
1: I would be so thrilled and so honored. And I would want one for myself.
0: (laughs) Explain the don't be a hero. That is is one of your favorites.
1: Don't be a hero. Just do anything that will positively affect your weighted on base. Average is perhaps my favorite cheer of all time. Yes,
0: it is. It is an excellent cheer. Uh, Chris Jones, my good friend, the outstanding, outstanding writer would like to know, and this is probably directed to you, Brandon. Uh, he would like an extremely deep dive on Pat Henkin's recently posted classic Nike cleats <laughs> and why there was such a run on them in baseball when they stopped making them. So for those of you who missed it, uh, Pat Henkin, uh, I guess this was just a couple of days ago, um, uh, posted a photo of himself in full uniform, um, Sort of in pitching motion in front of his house, Pat Henkin, former Cy Young winner. Pat Henkin, by the way, um, you loved that photo, didn't you, Brandon? I liked it
2: just for the the shoes. I I, I like a lot of Blue Jay jerseys um, in general. I just always have found them really, really cool looking. But the shoes are what jumped out to me first because they were the the original Cooperstowns from the '90s, and they were they're what Mariano <laughs> wore his whole career, and they became they truly became like gold after. Um, They discontinued that model and they started updating into new models and and people hated the new models. They didn't look as good. They didn't look as, um, so there was like this, this certain cachet that they were Mariano's cleats. And then Gagne had like a large storage of blue ones that he had gotten from his time with the Dodgers. Um, And so Gagne wore them um, for years and years. So they were like reserved for the super elite guys and nobody else could get their hands on them. Um, I got very lucky. I got close with Gagne when we were in Texas together and he gave me one of his pairs so I actually wore one um, (sighs) in a game in like 2007, I think, in Texas when I was still with Adidas and I think it nuked my Adidas contract so that didn't work out well. (laughs) But worth it! It Yeah.
0: But worth it! But I
2: got to wear them and they they weren't even, they were like super lightweight, they weren't terribly comfortable because they're still older shoes but they were very lightweight and you just felt infinitely cool wearing them like they were just above you. Um, they were just these little pieces of, I think, I don't know that anybody even now knows what they are anymore. Certainly players I don't think do, but, but at the time they were very valuable and he's just wearing them. And it was just a good flex in that photo that he still had a pair. <laughs> it
0: was, it was impressive. go, go to Twitter and, and see the photo of Pat Hankin and those shoes. They are, they are true old school. They are true, true old school. All right. Uh, Matt wants them. He has a magic themed question. What pitcher has the most deceptive delivery? I assume the magic theme question is, uh, I don't know if I mentioned it to this to either of you guys, but I wrote a book about Harry Houdini. Um, you did. did. Did I mention this? I, I don't think I mentioned that to you guys. Please tell um, us about it, Joe. Yeah, it's a book about Harry Houdini and it's out there and it's available. Um, but I like the question. The question is what pitcher has the most deceptive delivery? And so I, I guess you could take that a lot of different ways, but Brandon, what would you, by deceptive delivery, would you say what, that, uh, you know, able to, to sort of hide the pitch he's throwing best? Or what would you, how would you describe deceptive
2: delivery? Yeah, I guess like you just can't pick up where the ball is coming out of uh, without having faced yeah. a lot of them. I mean, on the face of it, I would say sale because it's just the angles are,
1: you never are know, just yeah.
2: wrong. And, um <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're, it, like it kind of moves slow in the back and then it just comes really fast out from the side. I, He's my first answer and I feel like I'm probably shortchanging someone else, but um, there are some guys who hide the ball just unbelievably well and they're just forever deceptive. Um, Yusmar Petit is still pitching and um, we came up together in rookie ball and nobody has ever been able to see the ball out of his hand well. Like, he's had this fantastic career even though the stuff isn't fantastic because there's just something to it that you never can really see what's happening. Um, so there's a few guys like that and I'm, I'm blanking on some other names.
0: but I love that. I love that. Ellen, did somebody come to mind for you for deceptive delivery?
1: I, I mean, I guess I would have said Chris Sale as well because we were already talking about him, you know, and I and I do feel like because of his arm slot and because of the fact that even though everybody knows that his fastball can't rise, everybody swears that his fastball is rising, um, that's definitely something. I don't know. I guess I'd also probably think of, like, some, some side armors, you know, the, like, Steve Ciszek, Pat Neshek's of the world um, are could can be kind of disruptive and, and surprising and deceptive for batters.
0: I wish there were more sort of goofy, Louis Tiant-like, oil can boy-like uh, deliveries, right? I wish there was more, like, just that there was a little more... It's interesting to me. I mean, we, we, we did talk about the 70s. It felt like in the 70s you could kind of get away with not having great stuff. If you had like a good attitude, like a big time, like, <laughs> like if you're Al Herbosky, like Al Herboski's up there and he's stomping on the mound and he's turning his back and he's like being like a professional wrestler. And then he's throwing 84. I mean, it's not like he's coming at you with like, you know, with goose gossage heat or whatever. Um, but it worked for a long time. It's like just, just having attitude was like enough. And I guess that's probably not true anymore, but I do wish we had more sort of, goofy windups and, and people kind of goofing around like Zach, like Zach Renke, will do that. He'll, he'll quick pitch you or try some sort of, you know, different uh, type of thing. But um it's, but yeah, I wish there were, it's more. coming.
2: It's, it, it won't be like Louis Tion. It won't be quite that, but I think you, you've seen the people like messing with timing. You've seen Kenley Jansen. And then especially like Stroman doing his way, yeah. you're seeing more and more like amateur pitchers do it and actually work on it. And then minor leaguers and, uh we have a guy in, in the Texas Miley system named Hans Krauss who's been doing it since high school and he actually like it's like he specializes in it. He can he can stop the world on the mound if he wants to and sit there and wait wow. and wait and wait and do anything he wants. And so there's some people who are just getting good at doing it because it's it's a valuable thing to just add in. I mean, if the whole point of hitting is to mess with or pitching is to mess with timing, if you can actually do it physically, you might as well. So I think you'll see more of it in the next decade.
0: Oh yeah. Satchel Page did it. That at the whole end of his career. That's like he was was that whole hesitation pitch and and uh and it did. It worked. It was effective. Scott wants to know if this is for you specifically, Brandon. How is the power washing business going? How clean is your driveway right now? So for those who missed it, Brandon, uh, when talking about jobs he would love to have, mentioned he would like to be a sort of uh amateur. Superhero power washer, where he would just power wash people's houses without them even asking him. Um, how how's it going there with the, with power? I washing? need to
2: turn it on. I probably should have. Um,
0: <laughs> you have one? Yeah,
2: I do, and it's it's there. I just I've been so bored during this that I haven't even done the things that I want to do. I don't even. <laughs> I'm probably in some weird place mentally. Um, I I actually should get out there and do it. We had a we actually had a reason. Kind of a weird reason last week that um to to clean the driveway we just used the regular hose for it so i'm I'm, I'm wow. that's a lot of missed opportunities right now
0: you're off your game I, am, I mean if you, if you guys were actually cleaning the driveway and you didn't go for yeah. it that's that's off all right two more uh Ellen I'm gonna specifically send this one to you because I think you're the nicest person on, uh, in in this group um the question is from Keith and the question is What does Sepinwall need to do to get back in the good graces of the podcast? Because I know what Brandon would say or what I would say, which is nothing. There's no possibility of him getting back in the good graces.
1: Um, Well, I would like to I would like him to apologize for the shade that he threw on my friend Omar Epps the last time that he was on the podcast. Yes. Um, yes. And I mean, the thing that immediately springs to mind—he might not do this, but I do think that this is his path to redemption. Would be to just choose a different uh, baseball franchise to be a fan of, <laughs> um, and that's apropos of you know what I talked about last time about how like anybody who is on the Yankees can be saved by doing something that's not associated with the Yankees. And so, um, so yeah, I feel like if he were to just kind of come to his senses and realize that. You know, really, any of the other twenty nine teams would be a better, better team to throw his uh, allegiance behind. Yeah, he could be saved.
0: Okay, so so the two step process that you are throwing out there is one: apologizing to Omar Apps because he he made the. He, he basically, in order to, to make the point about the uh, Major League Two not being nearly as good as Major League One, he he specified Omar Epps. He, he specified. He didn't
1: need to specify. He could have just drafted the player. You know, he, he could did, have just drafted right. the character. He didn't,
0: he didn't have to do that. And you and Omar Epps uh, are friends and co-workers. You've, you've, you've done. Uh, we did a uh, movie. You, you just did a movie together. Correct. And then secondly, drop the Yankees. Those are the two things he needs to do.
1: Th- those are
0: suggestions.
2: Brandon, does that get him back in? I think he just needs to have respect for the nonsense that this is, and like, <laughs> I don't know, like, this is all kind of like Calvin Ball, anyways, and somehow he's still managed to break the rules of Calvin Ball, and I think <laughs> that's, that's really so his, true. Um, if he would just kind of just keep it within the borders, like he has to have one off the wall <laughs> pick every year. So he, I think he's he's a good time. He's I he's not out of the graces, I man. I don't have the Yankee hatred that you guys have, so. So maybe he's not, not coming in from as far behind.
0: Now he will we'll always have room for, for our guy. We'll always have room. Wonderful writer. Just dreadful in all other ways. All right. <laughs> um, last, last question, um, uh, is from, uh, book Bruxton. Okay. Uh, how about a discussion of some of the players who didn't make the cut for the favorite players essay on the athletic? Um, and, uh, for those of you who don't know, I am, I've been doing for, uh, it feels like 52 years now. Uh, I have been counting down the hundred greatest baseball players, um, over at the athletic and you can see, I believe I have now written 93 of them. So you can, you can go on the athletic and, and, and see those. And, and actually they have a special deal going on at the athletic now, 90 day free trial. So you could probably, if you, uh were committed, actually read all of them during that, during that time. Um, but, but because of uh, what has happened to baseball season, I have also started adding in uh, a few other things uh, into the, into the mix. And that includes um, sort of a list of favorite players. And and they are not necessarily all my favorite players, but they are favorite players that uh, people are nominating. They are favorite players that are sort of, you know, I did a poll there. So I did, uh, you know, some of those top people, uh, their favorite players, just just generally um, cool players that are interesting. So I will ask uh, each of you, I know who your favorite players are, I think. But what I would like for you to do is put that favorite player aside and give me another favorite player. So it can, it's like your second favorite player, I guess, is what I'm looking for. Ellen.
1: I, i'm sorry i'm I'm confused by the rules who do you who do you who do you think my favorite player is
0: well you've got I mean, basically here's what I want you to do because because I've seen a list of your favorite players we have discussed many of your favorite players how many t-shirts of of players do you have
1: oh my god i i it's got to be like more than thirty more than thirty
0: favorite players Probably. so I want you to try to go outside of your comfort zone with this on your favorite player. I'd like for you to like give me something. So so here's Am what I I'm nominating
1: do. somebody for you then to write about or Ooh
0: and I had not thought of it that way now, but but we can. <laughs> We're just giving we Joe work. Joe just needs work. Let's just
1: yeah. I guess that's yeah. what I meant by I'm unclear about the rules here.
0: No, no, there are no rules. This is not um I mean, if if you want to nominate someone for me to write, I will certainly take it under advisement. Um, you know, I know the manager, but um, but that is your that is your call. But what I want you to do is is sort of reach deep in and find a favorite player that would be surprising for us.
2: Ella, do you want me to go first? Wow.
1: Yeah, why don't you go first?
2: Well, I would say I think Hershiser would be a good one. I love it.
0: First sure, is a great favorite player.
2: Yeah. And that was, I mean, he was my guy when I was, when I was a little kid in LA and then getting to know him much more. in um, in LA, he was fantastic. And, um, just a really, really good guy. I enjoy talking to, but I mean, just as I've gone back, we've, um, I certainly remember being a kid during that run I'm just five during that run in 88. So you're, you're aware. And I do have a very cool personal story of, of actually meeting him and how that came about for at some point, I guess I could tell, but he, uh, I, my dad ended up saving a bunch of newspapers from that run and a bunch of the Lakers runs when we were living in LA at the time, and um, he just gave them to me. So I spent a couple of months ago was just going through old newspapers, reading the articles, and and digging through, and then you just kind of realize like how dominant Hershiser was during Jeez. just during '88, and then especially just during that postseason run. I mean, it was just just incredible. So it was a it was a kind of a fun thing to
0: relive. Totally incredible, and by the way, his '89 season, if I'm not mistaken, is like one of the most underrated seasons ever. Like in '88, he won everything, and and everybody you know knew how awesome he was. And then in '89, because they didn't score any runs for him, like he, uh, you know, everybody just thought, oh, okay, well, he's not the same, not the same pitcher that he was uh, the year before. Um, uh, but he was absolutely like almost identical. To this, I mean, like literally the numbers are almost identical.
2: Yeah, that's really interesting. I just how, I just looked at that, I didn't realize it was even quite that good. That's wow,
0: yeah, yeah, there he was. Okay, so he went 23 and 8 in 88, had the 15 complete games and eight shutouts, which he led the, the league in both, uh, 267 innings, um, and uh, won the Cy Young and, and World Series MVP 89, uh, 15 and 15. So everybody's like, eh, yeah, it wasn't as good a year, but. 2.31 ERA, uh, almost the same number of innings, exactly the same number of strikeouts, almost the same number of walks, had a better fielding. He gave up half the number of home runs. Uh, so he had a better fielding, independent pitching, FIP, uh, ERA. Um, yeah, it was actually like every bit as good in 89 and nobody knew it. That's That, that was back in those days, man, when one loss record was, was everything. everything yeah. So it was just, yeah, it was totally everything. Uh, why was Hershiser that good, by the way? Like what, what made Hershiser so great? I don't, without,
2: without being able to go back and like really watch videos. I mean, it, every, the clips that I've seen and the snippet, like the chunks of games that I've watched, it was just like, he just commanded the ball. It just seemed like he always, yeah. and he was yeah. just a very cerebral, like intuitive pitcher. So I think he was just one of those guys who had an eighth sense of how to get hitters out and like how to execute the pitch that it took to do it. Like, um, You know, in talking to him, he would he would talk about things, and it's always hard to tell with players who have retired, like when they're actually describing a thing that they did, or maybe they really were that in tune with things, like the way the wind was blowing, what that meant for their pitches that night, and they could do things because I certainly wasn't that way. And he would mention those things, and your your natural inclination is to kind of roll your eyes and think like, no, you didn't think. And then they say it enough, you are kind of like, well, maybe you actually were on top of all these little little external factors that just made you. That made you really good, so I think he was just clued into a lot of things and and knew how to get the most out of himself.
0: I think that's right. I, I mean, I really think you, I mean, from what I remember and from from my own talking with him, I think that's I think that's exactly right. It's not like like everybody talks about command as a pitcher, and they're usually referring to control. But you know, I mentioned Catfish Hunter earlier, um, and and I think Hershiser's like this too. I think there are just some pitchers that just. Just know what to do like they have a command of everything like like you said the external factors uh they just have a command of of you know the kind of hitter they're facing and what they can get away with and 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 it's just you know it's it's joy to watch them because it's not it's not stuff you know it's it's stuff plus control plus command plus like all of these other little things it's really really cool all right alan we've given you enough time who okay. you got for us?
1: Well, I was just, what I was debating about was whether or not this counts, um, because I, you know, I feel like my, my love of Aaron Nola is well publicized. And in some ways, you know, Von Hayes, as the first man that I ever loved, um, <laughs> is also relatively well publicized. But I wonder if Cliff Lee counts because oh
0: yeah you'll get you can have cliff lee okay
1: because i I but i love him so much so it doesn't feel like a deep dive to me but i just wonder if perhaps it's it 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 isn't who you were thinking was one of my favorite players um and in some ways you know maybe sort of um i don't know uh, uh an unexpected choice for uh for a phillies fan over somebody like uh, Cole Hamels who was part of the 08 team or Roy Halliday who I feel like is many people's favorite and obviously like I love them too um, but I I have a particular love of Cliff Lee I actually I have a um, a portrait of him um, in my living room that I can just like look up at it's sort of stylized but um, yeah I really love Cliff Lee
0: Cliff Lee is delightful Cliff Lee well, mean I don't he's know, sort personally. of personally. I don't know personally, personally. I'm not talking about him as a person, but he was such a delightful pitcher to watch. I remember writing a piece that he had had, it must've been during uh, one of their playoff runs or whatever. And, and it was, it was the closest thing I can, I think maybe to this day, the closest thing I ever saw to like a pitcher where it felt like it was hypnosis. Like, like whatever he was doing, the batters just were, absolutely obeying his every command. I remember writing a piece about just how it just felt. It felt different from other great pitching things. It just felt like he could do whatever he wanted and hitters just bowed to his, to his command and control. And, and, uh, and it's interesting because he was really a power pitcher when he first came up and then he, he developed into this like artist type of pitcher. So I think an excellent choice.
1: Yeah, he was a, he was a master of, of three pitch strikes or uh, strikeouts was was Cliff Lee. And I think, you know, that was definitely it seemed like he was the only Phillies pitcher in 2009 who was able to hypnotize the Yankees in that in that World Series. And um, might have been
0: from that series that I wrote about that. That might be that yeah. might be from that series. I, I need to go find that. I'll send that to you. Uh, or I'll reprint it and pretend uh, that it's uh, one of my favorite players. so i can I can do I can do either of those. All right, All right, we're gonna uh, go to our draft, but before we do that, we are going to uh, go to this quick interview that I did with Eric Nussbaum uh, about his new book, Stealing Home. Okay, so we're gonna try something uh, a little bit new here on the podcast. We are going to uh, try to have uh, a special interview eric we're, we're using eric nussbaum as our as our guinea pig here uh we're going to try to put a, an interview in each week um with a recommendation for something to read see mostly to read i would think uh while we were all uh stuck inside and and uh and you know couldn't couldn't start with a better a better guy uh, eric uh Nussbaum's new book, "Stealing Home: Los Angeles, the Dodgers, and the Lives Caught in Between," is uh, it's fantastic. I I will tell you, I am about three quarters of the way through, uh, but it is it is absolutely wonderful. Uh, Eric, first of all, thank you for doing this.
3: Thank you for having me on. I'm excited to be a guinea pig today on the podcast.
0: (laughs) This might never happen again. So so you you are you are the uh, the first. But you know what? This book is it it really is terrific, and it's it's so much more than a baseball book. And I've got a couple of very specific things that I want to to ask you about. But first, rather than me do it, uh, I'd love for you to just sort of explain this book. I love where it came from in your life. But if you could just explain a little bit about what this book is about and why you decided to write it.
3: Sure. So the book, in very simple terms, is about how L.A. ended up with Dodger Stadium, uh, this beautiful, magnificent ballpark that's become one of the central iconic places in L.A. And it's a really complicated and dramatic history, and it goes back decades to this community that was there, these three communities called Palo Verde, La Loma, and Bishop. And they were kind of these isolated, mostly Mexican and Mexican-American communities. And in the late 40s, they were slated to become, to be raised to build a public housing project. And before that public housing project could get built, but after almost everybody had been evicted, the red scare happened and amidst the red scare the housing project was canceled and the people had been mostly evicted for no reason after a few years of kind of limbo the city sells the land to the Brooklyn Dodgers who were coming to LA to build
0: Dodger Stadium yeah it's it's really incredible there are, there are well you know what but before i do that i i love i mean i don't know if this was totally the inspiration but um I was totally fascinated by the fact that one of the main characters in this book um, was somebody that you saw in high school, right? That, that came to speak to your class.
3: Yeah, so my junior year of high school, my U.S. history class, uh, a man named Frank Wilkinson came to speak about McCarthyism and the Red Scare, and Frank had been a public housing official. And at this point, I mean, this was, he was in his late 80s. He was a, as an older guy, and he had been a public housing official in L.A. in the 40s and 50s until he was outed as a communist and lost his job. His whole life was ruined. His wife was a public school teacher. She lost her job. So really, he was there to talk about that experience, and he became an activist, an, a First Amendment activist. But what really fascinated me was was the circumstances in which he was outed as a communist, and they have everything to do with how we got Dodger Stadium.
0: Yeah. I mean, he actually said... Didn't he actually say during the talk something like, "Are there any Dodgers fans here?" and 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 you were among those that raised your hand, and and then he said, "You know, there shouldn't be a Dodger Stadium, right?" I mean, it wasn't. Yeah, that's it. That's incredible. It should not exist. Should not exist. It's just just incredible. Let me tell you the two things that I find most fascinating, and 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 would love for you to talk about about those. The first is. You know, you're from LA. I mean, you grew up in LA. Grew up a huge Dodgers fan. This, this, I imagine, even though I'm sure you found countless new things. The basic story here is probably extremely well known in LA, right? I mean, it's a very famous photo of of the last person to be evicted, who is a, a big character in this book, and 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 it's it's very well known. But I think nationally. The story of the Dodgers coming is much, much more of a story of of them leaving Brooklyn. Don't don't you think? Like don't you think that that because like for me, a lot of this was new. And and I've I've read a couple of interviews with you, uh, and and you know people in LA, and they talk about oh you know this story it's been told. Why did you why did you feel like you needed to come to this story that that a lot of people know? But I got to tell you, I don't think a lot of people know this story at all.
3: I don't think so either. I think there's a bit of an East Coast bias when it comes to the story of the Dodgers move. And that has a lot to do with the sort of mythical nature of Ebbets Field and the Brooklyn Dodgers. And that's fair. I mean, there was a huge loss. It's a tremendous loss to, to lose a beloved franchise. But there was also a whole kind of another story that was happening on the West Coast. And it wasn't like L.A. was some little backwater. This was a, you know, a, gro- a growing, booming city and really interesting things were happening. And at this point the LA Dodgers have been in existence for I think as long or longer than they were in Brooklyn. Yeah. I mean, we're talking about a historic franchise in its own right.
0: Yeah, it it really I, I find that part of it fascinating. At least on my end as a as a baseball fan, I mean I feel like I've been inundated with Brooklyn Dodgers stuff, right? I mean, I feel like I've I don't think there's a person who lived in Brooklyn at the time who has not written some book on the pain of losing the Dodgers. I mean, it just <laughs> feels like it's everywhere. And yet I don't feel like, you know, that this this story, I mean, it feels to me like the story was, you know, they left Brooklyn and they went to LA and they became a huge success, and that's the end of the story. And and to to see really a a city quite in turmoil, um, you know, over over this and, and, and to see how much pain uh, the Dodgers actually caused, uh, you know, and, and probably to this day, uh, you know, as you write, it, it is still a part of, of the L.A. experience. I just find that to be fascinating.
3: Yeah, I, I mean, I did too. <laughs> that's why I wrote the book. I think the, the thing that's really interesting about the Dodgers coming to L.A. is that it was – not just a sudden thing it had been building up for you know decades as the city was craving and and growing and wanting this this thing baseball and baseball became this kind of self-fulfilling prophecy of like we're you know la was always trying to become the bigger better brighter city and the idea of having a not just a baseball team but the dodgers that came to mean so much to, to people in power in the city and to a lot of people, you know, regular working class people in the city too.
0: Yeah, absolutely. The second thing that I find really, really fascinating and intriguing and, and you know, even even wonderful about, about the book is you see the title, right? And it's Stealing Home, Los Angeles, the Dodgers, and the Lives Caught in Between. And you know very early on in the book that you're going to be reading about, you know, really... Hard events, uh, tragic events. You're going to be reading about communities broken up and destroyed, and 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 yet, and I and and I want you to talk a little bit about your your feeling about this as a writer. You don't really create villains in this book. There there are certainly people that that you know caused great you know great harm. But I mean, for instance, if if I go into this book without any knowledge. I'm going to be convinced that Walter O'Malley is one of the villains of the book because Walter O'Malley is one of baseball's all-time villains, leaving Brooklyn, all of that. But he really isn't a villain in this book. I mean, he he certainly is not. You know, I mean, no, nobody in this book, other than than the people who were who were directly uh, harmed, I think, come across as as everybody's flawed. But but I I think you worked really really hard to to make it like. A lot of people were were doing what they sort of thought was best, and and this is where it led.
3: Yeah, I thank you for noticing that. It was something I really tried to. I, I wanted each you know figure in the book to to come off as they really were and with their their own real motivations to the extent that I could you know mine those up from the archives. And you talk about Walter O'Malley, he was a complicated person, and he had you know some pretty amazing ideas and. He was a visionary about what baseball could be and would become in the second half of the century. So just painting him as this guy who comes across and destroys everything in his path is not really fair. And it's not really fair to the to the events in the book. The, the events in the book, God, if there's one villain and somebody asked me early on, you know, who's the bad guy? And I kind of hesitated. I couldn't really answer because the bad guy, it's sort of the system, you know, it's yeah. corruption. It's it's the sort of tragedy of dysfunctional government and racism over not just a little bit of time, but a long time.
0: Yeah, no, that's, that is exactly how it comes across. Uh, You know, I mean, I think there's, there's such a depth uh, to this story because, you know, like I say, I mean, and and you talk about this quite a bit. There's, there's, you know, it's, this is not, uh, this is so much bigger than a baseball book, but there's a lot of baseball in it. And, and you, you work very, very hard. and, And I think undoubtedly as a baseball fan yourself, but you work very, very hard to talk about baseball's place uh, in Los Angeles and and how it played a, an enormous role in in creating the Los Angeles that we know today. I mean, that's that's a big, big part of the story. I mean, it's like mil- as you as you wrote, millions and millions of people were made very happy by Dodger Stadium. They
3: were, and Dodger Stadium was, I mean, and is. You know, I write. I think in the preface of the book, I think it's the most important and iconic and emblematic building in LA, uh, more than City Hall, more than the Hollywood sign, more than anything. Uh, not just because it's a wonderful stadium, and I, you know, it's my favorite ballpark still. Sure, but because of all the ugly history and all the sadness and all the kind of messiness that went into its construction.
0: What do you want people to take away from this? I mean, you know this. This isn't you know this this is this this is a book about a hard history this is a book about about you know some people who really really were were badly hurt and yet i don't get the sense at all that that you you know want people to to stop going to dodger stadium for example um but what do you want them to take away i mean do you want people when they go to dodger stadium to sort of feel this history and understand what this is to to look at LA in a little bit different light. What, what, what do you, what is sort of your hope? I hope that people
3: can love something and also be critical of it at the same time. And not just, you know, if you're from LA or New York or whatever it is, you can look back at the history of your city um, or Cleveland or Kansas city or whatever it is and say, okay, things have happened that were really bad, but that doesn't change the fact that I love this place. And it's okay to, to have a complicated relationship with something you love. And the same is true for sports teams. I think it's really easy for us to sit back and, you know, go all talk radio on a free agent acquisition. And that's great. And we should do that, but we should also be critical of our team's past and think a little bit about, you know, what it means to love something and who's been affected by that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. All right. So I have to ask you because we're all going through this. Um, your book came out. Uh, was it? Is it last week? I guess it probably came out. Was it last Tuesday? That, that Yeah, it, it was last Tuesday. Last Tuesday. Not the best time for for a book to come <laughs> out in for, for for many many obvious reasons. Uh, and yet, I think it's uh, a book that that uh, you know people will. It's there's a there's so many deep feelings about this book. You're reading about American history in addition to reading about Dodger Stadium and and these individual people. I mean, this the stuff with with the red scare and is is so powerful um but how how's it going like how how are you trying to get word out about this book you know um i think
3: it's going pretty well it's really it's really strange you know you spend all this time on a book and you you've done this and you get you know into your own head and you, it becomes the most important thing in the world sure and then you're very quickly reminded that it's definitely not the most important thing in the world. Uh, so you know, right now uh, we've been hang- I've been hanging out at home with my family and spending a lot more time on social media than is probably healthy. Um, you know, I had some book events lined up, and those are obviously not happening. So really, just trying to share it with the world safely from from a social distance and maintain perspective about you know wh- whether. Whether or not it sells as much as I would have hoped or I get to see it in bookstores, it's out in the world, and at some point, hopefully, uh, people will find it.
0: The book is Stealing Home, Los Angeles, the Dodgers, and the Lives Caught in Between, um, available everywhere online. Um, it, is, it is really, really terrific. Eric, thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you so much for having me.
3: This has been really fun to talk about. Uh, I'm honored to be on the podcast.
0: Okay, we're back and it is uh, time for our draft. And uh, we are drafting things we want to become good at during uh, our time at home, essentially. It's, it's, uh, it is a little bit baffling, but it is things we want to become good at. Or we would like to at the end of this, assuming this does end, this hibernation that we're in... Um, Things we would like to be good at uh, when we get to that point. And Ellen, uh, you have the first pick.
1: I do. Yes. What a surprise. So when you had uh, introduced this concept to me, you had said, even if we won't in parentheses. Oh, yeah. Very important. uh, Yeah. Which I took on as an important part of this. Um, particular draft as I was thinking about just you know kind of like scouting arranging my draft board nevertheless um, I'm gonna I'm gonna take a really solid first pick that is not entirely a joke um, but it will become a joke by the extremity with which I explain it which is I would like to finish my novel uh, okay. Yes. So I actually have been working on that every day um, that I've been in quarantine, but uh, finish is hilarious to me personally because I write very slowly. And so even uh, having worked on it every single day uh, since being in quarantine, I have still only uh, accomplished a, a chapter and a half uh, during that time.
0: How many chapters is it going to be?
1: Oh, I don't know. To be clear, that is like during that time, I'm, I'm on chapter 14 right now. So it's not that I have now written a chapter and a half of the novel, but I've only written, uh, yes, uh, chapter well, 13 it, and chapter 14 Well, in quarantine. If it's
0: 15 chapters, you're almost done.
1: Well, no, I think it's probably going to be more like 60. That'd be well, my...
0: That's further off then. Yeah. Yeah, that would yeah. be a little further off. How are you doing this? How are you writing uh, your novel? like like when you say you're working on it every day? Are you taking like a couple of hours or or more or less every day where you sit at a at a computer and 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 write or how are you doing this?
1: Yeah, it pretty much looks like that. I mean, I've okay. sort of I've split up my day into like I guess. I guess you could think of them as like classes. So I tend to get up and then I do some kind of like whatever ridiculous exercising I can do in my apartment. And then I tend to write next because I always want to do that while I haven't expended any of my other like mental or or, uh, creative capacities. And then I tend to like move on to like looking at a script or something like that. And then I move on to getting other stupid things done. So yeah, I will basically write until... I feel like I'm running out of steam a little bit and that my sentences are not getting as good. Um, or if I'm like, I have no idea what's going to happen next. I'll just stop for today and think about it for a while.
0: Well, this is, this is just delightful. I, I, we, we all want to read your novel. So, um, you know, I think some of these will be jokes, but, uh, get to that. We want, we want that book. Um, Brandon, you have the your, your first pick.
2: Um, I'd like to get a degree. Um, okay. I, again, this is what the caveat that you gave us that we're absolutely not <laughs> going to do this. So Right.
0: None of these will yeah. be done.
2: That is correct. Um, I started thinking about it. I, I don't have actual like a desire to have a degree. It's never been a thing for me that I've um, um, cared. I, li- I love the idea of learning. So I, it just kind of came about. I started thinking more and more about I'll go down rabbit holes. I like learning. reading things so I'll just I'll do it on my own and go there and it's like well should I be doing this for something like would it be nice to have something at the end and I don't think I really a degree doesn't really do anything for me but maybe it'd be I don't know so I started thinking more about it I was like well maybe I should look at online and I started thinking even more about that it's like well what if I got into some elective that I needed or something it was like I ended up not caring about it like if the motivation's not there then I would probably just ditch the class halfway through and go back to something I did want to learn and so it became like a I just created my own obstacles for it. But it, in theory, <laughs> that would be a nice thing to do right now.
0: What would it be a degree in? If you, if, As long as we're talking theoretically, what would you like a degree in? It could be anything at this point since you're not going to do yeah, it. Yeah, I've always
2: tended somewhere to like business, business leadership somewhere in there. I, I guess something that could be somewhat applicable to, to areas that, that I have involvement in. But um, yeah, I could just as easily go into something else in, in history. I don't <laughs> – this is all for – this is all pretend, so – um I guess it could be anything. But I um, I don't know. I, I just like the idea of learning. I just don't know if I like the idea of learning for some purpose that I'm not necessarily motivated for.
0: I, I don't know. I, I could see it. I could see you, you know, I mean, depending on how long we're in this thing. Uh, I could see it. I mean, you do love learning. You love reading. You love finding out new stuff. I, that, I, I could see the degree thing. I could see that happening. I don't know if I, I don't I know if I like the idea of
2: writing a paper on something that I've learned. Like it's fun to learn the thing and be like, Oh, I know that now and that's a fun, <laughs> if I want to keep learning more, I'll learn more but then like, well you have to write a paper on this. Like, well I didn't want to do that part. I just wanted to learn the thing.
0: <laughs> I just want at the end to be able to call you Dr. McCarthy. That's really all I'm looking for at the end of this.
2: If we, if we can do that, we to. have been, our economy's gone. We are down to, <laughs> we're down to Wampum. There is no, we got big problems if I come out of this a
0: doctor. Just a doctorate. You don't need, you don't, it doesn't have to be in medicine. All right. Um, good. My first pick is, is, is uh, the thing that I'm working on uh, night and day. I, I not only want but fully expect to come out of, of uh, this quarantine uh, as the best table tennis player in the world. I I feel like, I feel like it's a, it's, it is a long haul, uh, but, but I feel like I'm, I'm motivated. Uh, I've got one of my daughters who, who is, is, is in it with me. And, uh, and, you know, I got a table table, a table tennis table, a ping pong table uh, for my birthday this year. And it was, which was very nice. And, and I had not really used it as much as I would have liked, but now I'm using it all the time to the point where, and this is absolutely true. I've, I've even, I went online and looked at like some YouTube uh, videos on how to get better at, at table tennis. (laughs) And, and one of the, well, not one, actually several of them, but one of the videos made it very clear that, that my, my, uh, my potential potential was being limited because I had the old shake hand grip, which I think most people have, which is basically grabbing the paddle and then putting your finger behind it like that's how it is and that is not you you're you like like my my ceiling is so much lower with that grip so I have now gone to what is called the pen holder grip on on table tennis and uh, which is what they use uh, in china and and Japan and and Korea. And uh, and that's where all the, the great players are. So I'm not saying that right when I get out, I'm going to be the best player in the world. I'm saying that I'll be among the best players in the world. And then from there, I will, once I get that kind of competition, that will take me to that final level.
2: It is a, awesome. that is a tough, tough road. We, I, I think it's been pretty publicized. Like <laughs> Kershaw, um, very good ping pong player and would host like yeah. host a charity tournament during the year. And then in spring training, we would host a team wide tournament that would run. And he's, he's just, he's a good player, very competent. but it's like good for like an amateur ping pong player, like for what we've all seen. So one day he brought in, um, he brought in uh, a professional who was the Arizona state champ, um, which is still (laughs) super, super, super down low on the rung, which, um, not even close to anything. And you legitimately cannot return the serve.
0: It's ridiculous. I did. That is actually, if, if we were being serious, ridiculous. I actually, when I was in Augusta, uh, for some reason, Augusta, Georgia became for a time sort of the American center for, for table tennis uh, and and like several of the top players in the country lived there and they had a big tournament there. And I got to like compete in the tournament for my, for my column. And I did, I played a guy. You're absolutely right. They hit that serve and you hold the, the rat, the, the bat, the the table tennis bat the racket um and it just pings right off of it and there's i mean it just goes flying there is no possibility of returning that onto a table that is absolutely 100 yeah. true
2: it's a really really steep curve
0: <laughs> how good is kershaw though like i mean is he like clearly better than like in that amateur world like was he definitely the best of of the group when when you had the table tennis struggles? yeah
2: he was the best of of us on the team, not it's not by like a massive margin, but well, that's um, what I was wondering.
0: Yeah, he wasn't like winning like twenty-one to three. It
2: depends on who he plays, but no, like the better players, no. I mean, it's he would win pretty consistently, but um, he's also pretty obsessive. He has a table, uh, he has a uh, table at his house, and then he practices, has some like different practice apparatus, and like um, I think oh, for a gosh. while he had like taken some lessons. So he actually he approaches it like full Kershaw. He gets really, really, really into it, but. Um, yeah.
0: Okay. I have a new goal. I have a new goal, and that is to beat Clayton Kershaw in, tennis, in table tennis. That's my goal now. I, I, I forget the greatest in the world. I just want to beat Clayton Kershaw. That's what I want.
2: Is Susan? Does anybody know? Is Susan Sarandon a good player? I know she's big into it. and She has a bunch of she ping is? pong clubs.
0: Right. Right. She supposedly is very good. That is, I've, I've actually heard that she is supposedly, and you know, she was in that uh, that table tennis movie that was Ping Pong Summer. That came out like last year, two years ago. So yeah, yeah, that fun, fun little, uh, fun little hibernation movie for you to catch. Ping Pong Summer. It's kind of a, a cute coming of age uh, type of thing. I'd really right, right, like Ellen. to see a
1: Susan Sarandon Clayton Kershaw ping pong matchup. That would be delightful.
0: Ooh, I get the winner. That would be awesome. Yes, I'll take the winner of Clayton Kershaw and Susan Sarandon.
2: I would bet it's happened because I think she's come to his charity event and. I'd have to ask, but I, I would bet they've, they've played.
0: Well, you know, table tennis, like that, it's actually really fascinating. Um, the, uh, the, uh, guy who does the, um, uh, New York times crossword puzzle, uh, the editor of the New York times crossword puzzle, Will shorts, um, owns a table tennis club. He has played table tennis. Well, I don't know how it's been going for him since we've gone into isolation, but, um, for more than six years, he had played table tennis literally every single day. Like, they, like he had a street yeah. going. And this, and this would include if you like traveled around the world, like he would go to China for, for puzzle things. He would play table tennis before he got on the plane. Then he would get on the plane, fly to China, and then have somebody drive him right to another table tennis club so that he would not miss a day. So he literally, every 24 hours, he would play table tennis. So it is an obsessive thing and, uh, and i have seen him play i did a story on him and i've seen him play and i think i've got a better shot against kershaw that's what i'm saying <laughs>
1: <sighs> i wonder if he ever went around along the wrong side of the international dateline though <laughs> that
0: is true a technicality <laughs> all right Alan. Second pick.
1: Okay. So very briefly, I would just like to say that if I had been making a draft of things that I thought Joe Poznanski was going to pick, I would have taken, uh, be a champion table tennis player in the first round. But obviously I didn't, I didn't take that for myself because I love you, Joe. And I want to let you have that. Thank um, you. Of course. So for my second pick, um, I'm going to pick, I want to be a black belt in karate. Um, yes. Yeah. Uh, I have done no karate in my life. In fact, I haven't even really done any martial arts of any kind. Um, I have done some stage combat training uh, and I which was both you know hand to hand and also rapier dagger and broadsword. but yeah, I have no experience in martial arts whatsoever. So I feel like this is um, this would re- really be branching out for me. Uh, and black belt. I mean, I hear that that's like the best you can be. So obviously that's the goal that I have. <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, that's what I, that's what I intend to do.
2: Is black belt the best you I, can be?
0: Well, this is the question I was going to ask. Cause if it is, I totally respect because that was the best you could be when we were like kids. And like, that's still the best you can be. I thought they went up and they're like, there's a higher, sort of the way gold records used to be the record thing until plastic.
2: There has to be because those kids that we knew getting black belts because it was just because their parents took them all the time. You're like, you're not actually like you can't take down a ninja like someone is clearly beating you up easily. So I want to know what, what's the next level there?
1: This is a, this is a really good point. And, and I feel like obviously I heavily researched this before I came up <laughs> with this pick. But uh, I feel like there are gradations of black belts. So, you know, you're well, I tell a, you a, a black belt level 10 or whatever. So,
0: well, I could tell you this in Seiki Juku Karate, a red belt denotes 10th Q.
1: Well, maybe I want to do that because that's like a Phillies color. <laughs>
0: That's really, you should, whatever red belt is, you should do that just for the filler. Yeah. Okay. So wait, what was great. that again?
1: Can I, I just, I need to write down what was that? What was the name of that kind of karate again?
0: <laughs> I guess there's several different kinds of karate where red belt is, is, is one of the belts. All right. So, I'll just Google it.
1: So, so actually uh, first on my list, one Google red belt <laughs> karate. Great. Awesome.
0: Yeah. No, I can do that today. Uh, I like the fact that in East Asian, I'm I'm now looking at the Wikipedia page on black belt. It says in East Asian martial arts, the back belt is associated with expertise, which we know, but may only indicate competence depending on the martial arts. So apparently there's some martial arts where basically if you're just, I mean, we're not going for competence here, but yeah, apparently competence is, is enough to get you a black belt in certain types of, yeah, who cares so, about
2: competence? That doesn't do anything in a street fight. You're <laughs> yeah. like, I know all the moves. I know exactly how they're executed. <laughs> But boy, my lip is swollen. Like you shouldn't hit me like that again.
0: <laughs> hey, back off! I am <laughs> yeah. competent at karate. I mean, that would not scare anyone uh, at all. Uh, Ellen, I will come back to you on your third pick because I I would have guessed something earlier than than karate on your on your thing. Okay. But, I, but I'm gonna but I'm gonna go to Brandon with your second pick.
2: Uh, and again, this is with fully realizing that I won't do anything about this. i never <laughs> complete this task. But it's uh, learning how to cook. Um, I remember when I retired, I told my wife, I was like, Hey, I think when I retire, I'm going to want to learn how to cook because she cooks a lot. She's um, always making food for us. And I was like, I think I'm going to learn how to cook. Like that seems like a pretty good, useful skill. And I, I don't like even making a sandwich. I hate pouring myself. There is something about (laughs) the act of making food for myself that drives me insane because i can't i have no patience for it i'm hungry now and i'm not going to make food when i'm not hungry for me to eat later that's that seems ridiculous and so when i am hungry there's just a bunch of food in front of me i can't stand to wait to have it to eat so it's it's like this sisyphean task for me where like, i feel like i'm never going to get to where i want to be i hate I, so it's like I, I just know that if i could just snap my fingers and know how to cook that would be wonderful but I will never, ever put in the time. And I actually realized this yesterday. She asked me, she's like, I thought you said you were going to learn how to cook. And I said, no, I've I realized that shit passed. I, I, I hate it and I'm just not going to do it. And so that's where I'm at
0: now. I'm just imagining you in the kitchen, hungry. You've got the bread. You've got like whatever. I don't know, whatever kind of sandwich you want. It's a turkey sandwich. You got the turkey. You got the lettuce. You got like mayo or mustard or whatever you're going to use. Onions. And you just going...
1: I can't do it. This
0: is too much. This is, this is, I'll, I'll never get there. I'll never get from these items to an actual No, and sandwich. I
2: just, the idea, it feels like the longest, even if there's something to be microwaved, and I have to ask her, like, how long is she? like, just a minute 15. It's like, oh my God, <laughs> like that's, it, I, I really am like a very annoying teenager who can't do anything for himself, and she would fully recognize that, and so I, it's like, that's just too long to be microwaved. Why do I have to do that? And, so i know that if i actually had to like sauce up a pan or do something or make a sauce that would just would never happen
1: well, what's even better f- for me personally is I'm imagining you as Joe has just laid out in the kitchen with the bread and the and the turkey and the lettuce and everything. And I'm just imagining you eating those things individually.
0: Yes. You know, uh-huh. so you just
1: sort of like putting the bread in your mouth <laughs> and ready. and then this just like food. squirting the, the mayonnaise or the mustard just directly <laughs> in there, kind of like a couple little bites of the turkey. Yeah, it's... Um, It's delightful Yeah, I think the
2: way that I would, if I lived by myself, it would be like some sort of a Seth Rogen stoner thing just without being the stoner. (laughs) But I think that that's how I would come across. Like, this guy just doesn't have his life in order whatsoever.
0: The great thing about every time you come on the podcast, every time, is I think every one of our readers not only appreciates what a great guy you are, but what... The heck Amanda has to put it's, up with it's just it's just astonishing. She
2: right now she Kashi. is she is a complete line chef. She is and she loves she loves to cook, but she's got me. She has a four year old and she has herself, and so all three of us have different dining tastes, obviously. Yes. Right now, so she is. It's like three breakfasts at a little bit different time, and then it's three lunches, and then three three dinners. If maybe I mean she she made a new dish last night and had to make up a she knew this probably wasn't going to come off. I'm going to make Brandon a backup dish and made a backup, <laughs> backup backup dinner for me. Cause it just, um, she is, yeah, she's a saint. Yeah. I mean, she, there's no question.
0: She is a saint. She is a saint. All right. My second pick. Um, I would like to, at the end of this, uh, whenever it is no off the top of my head with, with no, um, with no, you know, just, just basically no 50, Uh, card tricks i want i i think i know like maybe five card tricks now that i've that i'm like reasonably good at like reasonably like if you're if you're not paying attention i could get you with one of these card tricks um i'd like to know 50 I'd, i'd like to i would never actually perform like in public for any reason whatsoever because i would be way too embarrassed but i would like the just the knowledge of knowing that if somebody said, hey, the magician didn't show up, uh, that I could just go, hey, anybody got a deck of cards and I would be able to do a full 20 minute show or whatever it would be. So uh, I, I, you know, I have a deck of playing cards right next to my uh, computer um, and and I, I would like at the end of this to know 50 card tricks.
1: That is excellent. And I also think you're being a little bit modest because I have read stories in which you have flummoxed people with your card tricks. And if you say, oh, those are just my daughters, your daughters are incredibly intelligent human beings.
0: Yeah, but they're just being nice. Like, they're not really flummoxed. They're just pretending to be flummoxed.
1: I don't by believe my, it. My card tricks.
2: That's what teenage girls typically do. They give their dad... A, a wealth <laughs> of undeserved credit.
1: Yeah, totally.
0: Yeah, yeah, that is that's a fact. Yeah, that's that's pretty much what they live for. Is is uh, yeah. No, no, Dad, you're the greatest. <laughs> um, all right, Alan, with your third pick, and and I just wanted to mention, I, I'm not going to try to jump ahead, but you mentioned um, that you that you've done some stage uh, fighting, and you mentioned rapier and and uh, and sword. I can't believe that becoming a, a, an expert fencer was not uh, on your list. I assume it is, but I can't believe you went to karate first.
1: It's on the long list, but I felt like oh, karate. Love swords. I do. I really love swords. Um, <laughs> oh, God, I love swords. <laughs> Um, it's my Brandon, swords. my this favorite. True. My favorite genre of film is the people fighting with swords genre of film. Um, but I felt like since I have some experience with this already, it would be more fun to pick something completely okay. different. And I also felt like having martial arts could be very useful to me as an actor.
0: Well, that is true. Yes, that is true.
1: Um, All
0: right. Well, you have a third pick.
1: So my third pick um, is that I would like to. Uh, I would like to be able to play the banjo and I'm actually going to say competently here. Um, I do not need to be the best banjo player of all time, but I would like to be able to play the banjo well enough that I can like sing a song at the same time that I play the banjo, um, which is, I think a pretty high level of competence. Um,
0: you'd like to be as good at the banjo as Steve Martin.
1: Um, Sure. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm throwing that out. Yeah. I, I have not, um, I have not frequently watched Steve Martin play the banjo. I do know that he plays the banjo because I know about that, um, musical loose term uh, that he wrote. Yes. Um, so, uh, I picked the banjo partly because I feel like picking the guitar is the obvious, um, obvious choice. I also, I have sure. no experience whatsoever with stringed instruments. Um, I have played other wind instruments uh, in the past, but I picked the banjo for a couple of reasons. Um, One is that I hope that it will be a little bit more community conscious in this time. Like I think that the sound of me tooling around on the banjo hopefully will not cause my downstairs or next door neighbor much distress um, because they're already going to be tired of me of hearing my like karate screams. So um and, and this is, you know, I, I've had this thought partly because it seems to me that my upstairs neighbor, one of the things that they're intending to do with quarantine is to learn to play the saxophone. Um, and this will be great for him once he can, like, start producing full, clear notes and sure. maybe once he progresses beyond scales. But right now it's um it's... It's not super delightful for me, but I'm not here to say that this experience is all about me. Um, and then the second thing is that just banjos make me really happy. As soon as I hear a banjo, I just feel delight- delighted. As soon as a, a song starts and there's a banjo, I'm in and I'm sort of in my happy place. And my dad plays the banjo. And so I don't know if that's part of the reason for it or just because banjo music is objectively delightful. Um, but I feel like, yeah, that'll bring that'll bring me a lot of joy.
0: I like it. Banjo is a great instrument. You know the other thing that's great about the banjo is that you see those banjo players wearing those thimbles on their fingers. Mm-hmm. Like I've I've always thought that was really cool. Yeah. Like they I don't know how many monopoly sets they had to like go through to get those. But <laughs> but, but but just having those thimble I always thought that was really cool. Banjo, you a banjo fan there uh, Brandon? Um not
2: especially. I don't I don't have any attachment. <laughs> it doesn't send me to a happy place. I know that much. Um <laughs> I was going to ask until she said that, like, and it was personal that she enjoyed it and her dad played it. I uh, was like, well, why wouldn't it just be the guitar? Like, we, but I, I guess, like, I don't know. I haven't listened to banjo music. And every time I feel like I've heard the banjo, it's either been deliverance or it's been some sort of a comedy bit. And so it's, it, about deliverance. It's, <laughs> it, like, something, it always, like, either something bad's about to happen or it's a uh, comedy bit's about to happen. So I guess I don't really associate it with with happiness, but maybe I just have never heard it really played well.
0: Well, it's, uh, I I like it. I I think the banjo is delightful. All right. Uh, Brandon with your third pick,
2: I would, uh, I think I'd like to learn German. Um, sure. I, I, I can do a decent job picking up like Latin based languages. I just have like an affinity for language and, and can follow that, but like a Germanic based language, like anything out of that realm. I thought about, um, Chinese and started doing some like YouTube beginner interview, and you realize that's so far off anything that you're familiar with that it's (laughs) like it's starting over at at square one so I um, wasn't even close on that but German would I feel like that would just be a cool thing to to be able to have I think we all kind of fetishize people who can speak other languages and just do it and like we think it's such a cool skill as a culture like um, I think that would just be a especially being in the soccer world, just you you run across different people from different and you certainly run across some German people. So just be able to drop that in um, out of left field would be a fun thing to have.
0: It would be great if you could just break into a little German just, just for, I don't know why that would happen, but you know, it's, 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 uh, it's good. German that's Ellen. What do you think? Good pick.
1: I think it's a great pick. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's 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 challenging if you're already familiar with Latin languages but it's not too challenging like I wouldn't recommend to anybody that they try to learn Russian um which is the hardest language that I tried to learn. It's actually not just it's not the it's not just the different alphabet, it's the declension of nouns. I was like, "Oh, guys, I'm out. I can't do this."
0: <laughs> All right. Well, German is good. All right. With my uh third pick, I um I'm sort of feeding a little bit off of, off of Ellen's pick. I I would, this is something that I've wanted to do uh, for a long time. Uh, I'd like to learn how to play the piano. Uh, Like really play the piano. It's something that I've in, in years past, I have, I've started uh, trying to learn how to play the piano and, 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 you know, stopped cold. But, but I think the important thing for me with playing the piano is my, my goal for playing the piano is probably like the lamest thing i would like to be able to go like into a hotel bar and, you see one of pianos <laughs> yep. there, and just be able to play like requests i that's like 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 exactly the thing that that real pianists like hate the most like the thing that they have to do in order to survive so they can play concertos, you know, like in, in real life or play jazz or do something is I just want people to be able to come up to me and go, Hey man, do you know candy man? And I could just break into break into candy man on the, on the piano. I just want to be able to know like whatever the 25 most requested songs by like, the worst lamest tourists are. I would just like to know how to play those so that I could be in the piano bar and I could just break into those songs, uh, on, on command. So that's my dream.
1: I think that's an excellent pick. And it, you know, it's partly <laughs> like for the novelty of it. Right. So like the, yeah. the, the, professional piano players are so bored with that happening but i'm sure if somebody walked up to them and, and was like can you tell me a little bit about ty cobb and like they happen to know about baseball they'd be super delighted so yeah i mean yeah. variety it's a spice of life
0: exactly right exactly right and i wouldn't even have to play those songs that well just just well enough to be recognizable like that's really the so people would be like oh wow you have a that's like a skill. You have a skill there. You There's something you can do. Because I don't really feel like I have any public skills. Like there's there's almost – like if somebody came up to me and said, hey, here are three balls. Can you juggle them? I could do that. Uh, and and that would be impressive. But if somebody came up to me with four balls, I would not be able to do that. So I just would like to be able to have a skill that that somewhere in public when we're all basically allowed to be in public again, that I could just – on command, just be able to do that. And people go, wow, I, that's a whole other side of you. I, I had no idea you could actually do that.
1: Yeah. No, that's excellent.
2: Yeah, I like that <laughs> one. I, I, it's all kind of like Groundhog Day. We all just wish, wish like, it would be 10,000 years of doing this. We come out with these skills that just blow people away once the doors open in our houses.
0: Well, it's so funny. This idea really came to me from Groundhog Day, not from when he learned how to play the piano or ice sculpt or whatever. Remember when he was in like his bed and he could throw like the cards playing yes. cards uh-huh. into the hat. <laughs> and, and she said to him, this is what you're doing with eternity. And, and that's what I'm thinking. Like, what are we doing with eternity? Like we have all of this time. What are we doing with it? And, and honestly, if I could come out of this and be able to throw playing cards in a hat, that would be awesome. But that wouldn't be like my dream. Like that wouldn't be the wish. I would much rather be able to just go ahead and play like a uh, piano man, you know, just, just on a, on, on a on a dare essentially
1: mm-hmm. yeah you know it's oh it's funny just because I, I when you originally proposed this I I thought of another movie which is I've often thought that really the best of any kind of superpower would be like in the Matrix when they can basically just load a skill yes. set or a knowledge yes. base into a person like that I would take that over flying or being able to be invisible or like whatever it is that would be the best thing and and at first I thought about oh well maybe that's that's the way to go with this draft but then I thought well no because actually the things that I would pick for that is like and I would have absolutely no fun along the way learning that thing so I tried to pick instead things that I felt like would also be that actually I want the experience of learning how to do that thing as well.
0: Sure. Sure. Yeah. All they did was like shake their head like a few seconds and clearly they were going through some kind of pain and then they knew how to fly a helicopter. I mean, that's just, that's not, that's not enjoyable. Yeah. It's not fun. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I mean, there are endless skills that I would love to have if it required no time and energy, but um, yes. This is
2: a weird tangent. When you talk about superpowers and when people mention flying, when you picture flying, do you picture it like you fly at the speed you already go? Or is it like super? Because nobody ever brings no, that up. No, you have
0: to be. You have. It is true. You have to be able to go fast. Otherwise, flying. What's, what's the, the point? point? You're just floating somewhere for twenty five <laughs> minutes to go to the corner store. Like,
2: like okay, well, that'd be cool for about five minutes. But you're like, this isn't a superpower. I'm just really drifting like a gas. This isn't. That's not that fun.
0: And nobody even says how high off the that's ground. That's another
2: great one. Like you got to put some parameters <laughs> on these superhero things. Like if you can fly like Superman, then that's the answer. I'm sorry, I, that's I'll take that over learning French with a with like an upload. But if it's just me floating at like six miles an hour at a light jog pace, that's not going to do it.
0: And you're only like six feet off the ground. That's you're actually <laughs> kicking people in the head as you go flying. Still by. fences like, in That your would way. not be yeah. good. <laughs>
1: I wonder if that's part of it for me because actually in my dreams whenever I fly it's always with great effort and really I fly by like sending intentional energy down against things so it's almost like if you you know imagine I guess like doing an endless handstand crawling across things Um, so yeah I don't move incredibly quickly. Uh, and, it, yeah, it's always like I don't just get to, like, look up into the clouds. I'm always like, oh, my God, I got to keep my energy on the ground so <laughs> I don't fall.
0: That's actually a really another great point when people say they want flying. They, nobody talks about like, well, what if you have to basically flap your yeah. arms as hard as you possibly can? <laughs> like, is that a superpower? You still, you're still you getting to fly, but now you're like, after two seconds, you're like, all right, I'm going.
2: Do I have to get in space shape space for this space. and like maintain shape? And will it like lose its ability as I age? That would be... Oh,
0: man, I already tough. don't run. Yeah.
2: It's the same concept.
0: Yeah. Basically, all we want, like, any superpower is, like, it has to be effortless or else what's the – point? like, like the same thing, like, oh, if I, what if I could turn invisible? What if that was the most painful thing in the world was for you to – you could do it, but, like, you're just – your whole body is shrieking pain every second that you're invisible. You wouldn't want that superpower. Like, that wouldn't do anything for you.
1: Yeah, it just probably, like, wouldn't become invisible because there aren't that many yeah, practical applications be like, to, like, oh, I, to begin with.
0: You'd be like, oh, I could, but
2: – What's not the point of it. Right. Words. Yeah. I, no, yeah. That, like, I, I, some intensity, like, shoot fire out of your eyes. You're like, I, I guess you'd probably have to squint really hard for that. That's what it seems like they're doing. <laughs> but yeah, the other ones, if they take more,
0: more effort, I'm not, no, I'm not into it. All right, Alan, you got your fourth pick.
1: Oh, Lord. Okay. So, all right. I'm not actually sure what I'm going to pick here. I have a lot of different options. Um, so, I think. I'm going to pick glass blowing because uh, you know resources might become short, and uh, this way I could make, I guess, new receptacles of things for myself and for my neighbors. Uh, sure. And I'm sure that there's things that I would need uh, to yeah. to do glass blowing, yeah. but hopefully I could just you know get those online and get them shipped to me. So. Um obviously I've uh I've deeply thought through this. But yeah, I feel like I glass blowing say, I, it's a it's a craft. You know, I really enjoy drawing um and uh things like that. But glass blowing is something again I have no experience with whatsoever. So now seems like the great time to take it up.
0: I I'm not I, I again coming at it from a similarly uh ignorant point of view don't you need like lots of special equipment and like heat and like, I mean, like I don't like, can you even glass blow in your house? Is that like a possibility? No.
1: I mean, that's part of the reason why I really uh, feel like it's a great thing. Have you guys do. not watched the
2: Netflix show on glass blowing? It's a I, I have not competition. Yeah. It's no. really, really good. Um, it only took, it took like a day to watch maybe two days. Like it, it was, it's really good. And it, it's just the standard like reality show setup where it's a group of people and they just have to do challenges and they get voted off and eventually there's a winner. But they do unbelievably cool things and it shows you the process of how they do it and you get very familiar with it very quickly. And um, I don't know. I, I thought it was really good to watch.
1: I will definitely I like look this. that up. Who knows if I would have picked glass blowing if I actually would have seen what it t- truly entailed. I thought that's I'm what sure got you I'm- there. No, no. I know that I have seen it in my life. It was probably in some like Scandinavian country. I know that I have seen glass blowing and I I remember being truly fascinated with it as a child. And in terms of the heat thing, like our radiators in New York, you guys probably heard my radiator <laughs> early. Like they are Insane. We have no control over them. They just blow at full blast. So um, hopefully, you know that'll that'll be a, a helpful heat source for my glass no, blowing they say endeavor. That.
0: They say that the best kind of glass blowing is is usually use the heat from New York radiators. It's that's,
1: like an open furnace, basically. From. Yeah.
0: Sure. Yeah. Sure. I'm now looking. There are uh, not not only are there glass blowing classes in Charlotte, there's actually Yelp has the top ten glass blowing classes in Charlotte. Wow. So, So this is a real, this is a thing. I'm I'm very into it. All right. Brandon, with your fourth pick.
2: Um, I would like to learn how to fix literally anything around the house. Um, (laughs) Anything. And I I know that I probably won't do it because I have an irrational fear of um, dying doing something easily preventable. Um, Right. So that's what stops me from ever doing anything in terms of fixing because I there's so many people who know things that I don't know and being aware of that, that like that are blindly obvious that you don't know once you start out to do a task, like going up the wrong side of a ladder or like, no, you can't put that there because that's how you die from, um, you, you electrically shock yourself to death. (laughs) like, I don't know how to do a car battery, like the different charges. And so the fact that I know that I don't know these things and I don't want to like spend the time making sure that I stay alive doing this task, um, but, I, if, again, if it was, like, a downloadable skill, I knew how to, like, make two things stick together <laughs> or um, electricity <laughs> to happen in a room, that would be great.
0: I, I find myself often, like, wishing I knew – like, I don't even want to do it myself necessarily. But, like, you know how there is somebody there and and you're like, oh, man, I've got a you know, I, we've got a faulty wire and I might want to do this. And then there's somebody there who just knows like, no, you, you, you don't, you don't like, they just they know, know that the, they know the danger. They know exactly what it is, how you would die. They just know the very specifics. I just would like, I would like to know that I wouldn't necessarily want to do it, but I'd like to, I'd like to be able to walk by somebody who has a car problem and know what the problem is. Just be able to go, yeah, you know what? That's your carburetor, dude.
2: Yeah, just something, at least to, like, I think I know enough to know that everything will kill me, so don't do anything, but I do wish I could diagnose a problem, or at least,
0: yeah, I, I'm with you on that. I like it, I'm with, I'm with you on this, I'm with you on this.
1: I mean, the the only question is, it you know, if you if you had that knowledge, would you ever, therefore, feel the need to step in and actually do any of the things, and so perhaps, you know, ignorance is bliss, as I think we posited earlier.
0: No, I don't think you. I think it's very easy to explain to somebody that I just know. I, I, I couldn't actually do it myself, but I, I just know. I think that's. I think that gets you through almost any situation.
2: Yeah, maybe I'd have more confidence to try something like change a light bulb because I know like. I think you're supposed to turn the light <laughs> off and then change the light bulb, but I'm not even certain on that. Like,
0: this is true. No, that's that's true. I know that. But one. I don't know if there's that, like that something
2: else where, like, oh, you, you idiot! Like, if you're changing no, a halogen light, you had to know that this had to happen, otherwise you die. And the next thing you know, you're just dead. And they're all talking about like, how did he not know that? That's such an easy thing to know. And I just,
0: I do, I do fear quite often that everybody knows something I don't know. I fear yes. that all the time. But I do know that halogen lights—you're you, not going to die if you change a halogen light. That's that's somebody
2: okay. is shaking their head, right. listening to this right now in their car somewhere, going like, "No, you're wrong." <laughs> Obviously, if you do this, how do you not know this? If you do it in the back of your refrigerator, that's how you die. If we don't know it. We're all just ticking time bombs.
0: We are, we are all a ticking time bomb. All right, with my fourth pick, um, <clears throat> I would like um, this is this is I, I don't know if this is going to happen, but it's something I've already started working on. I'd like to learn how to talk to dogs. I I feel like I'm only doing it with my own dog at the moment. Um, But here's the thing. Like we've, we have our dog. Our dog is Wesley. Our dog is a, uh, is a standard poodle. He's just a gigantic, enormous fluff ball poodle uh, who is, who is just really, uh, he's, he's, he's great. He's a great dog, but, but he just, he feels like he needs to be heard several times. A day as, you know, and I understand that. I, I mean, he's got things to say and, and I, I found that yelling shut up at him does not actually quiet him down. And I, I want to be able to like, well, what I wanted for him to shut up, but, but I know that's not necessarily going to happen. So what I'd like to be able to do is figure out how, you know, it's like Brandon wants to learn German. I'd like to learn dog. I'd like to figure out a way where I could talk to my dog and, and not just get him to quiet down, but, but get him to explain to me what, what's going on. You know, like, like he'll go to the door and he'll just start barking. And I look out the window, there's nothing happening. There's n- I mean, it, like if, if I see kids on bicycles, okay, he wants to go out and play. I get it. But like, there's nothing out there. And I just wanted to like, what, what's on, what's up, man? What, what what's going on? And And I don't know. I mean, you know, he doesn't seem like the deepest thinker in the world, but I don't know. Maybe maybe he's just barking because he's like, Man, you know, we sh- we should have been better prepared for, for COVID nineteen. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. And I'd like to and I'd like to find out. So so I'm working on it. Um I I don't know how far I'll get, but I would like to be able to talk to dogs.
2: Have you ever tried saying thank you to the dog when it's barking? Oh, <laughs> no, that's I'm what not. I that's what I, I do and it, it works better than I would Like I've been doing it for years. Like I just kind of like change the tone. I say, thank you. Almost like you've accomplished something. Like, thank you. And then like getting a little bit closer and typically the dogs
0: will stop. Really? All right. I'm trying to think, this is awesome. The thank you technique, Alan. Have you tried the thank you technique?
1: I have not, and I've been wondering if this has been uh, passively, passive-aggressively directed at me and my inability to get Mabel to stop from barking no, um, during the no. last Although- conversation about uh, not killing ourselves doing high school uh, uh, <laughs> household tasks because. Uh yeah, I could not get her to stop barking. Um, but that was because somebody buzzed our apartment. I don't know See? who. So like, it she actually she had a legitimate complaint. That's what um, I'm saying.
0: We're so close to understanding. Yeah. Like Mabel, basically, what she was saying is somebody buzzed. Somebody, hey, hey. Yes. Hey, I don't know if you heard it, but somebody buzzed the door. Like, like I get that, and so I'm saying that if we could just differentiate and be able to figure this out, I think we could. Uh, oh. Just the things we could learn.
1: The thing that I normally say to her, because my dog is actually a very sweet-tempered dog, and she's like nine and a half pounds. She's a Shih Tzu. And so the thing that I tend to say to her is, like, she's so fierce when she really starts to bark. Like, I just sort of... Yeah. Yeah, I just... uh,
0: That won't work with Wesley. Yeah, probably Wesley is, by the way, this super sweet dog. This is... I think we all are lucky. I mean, but Wesley is... Could not be a sweeter dog. He loves, 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 loves people. That's why he's usually barking. He's usually barking because he's like, people are playing and I would like to be with them. That's Mabel. basically his his typical bark.
1: Thank but... you. <laughs> hey, did it work? Did it work? Uh, so far, so far it's working. Yeah, yeah she did alert. her little like run and growl thing, which, you uh, know, she likes sitting in the chair over by the window. And so when she has to go the incredibly long distance to our uh, one bedroom apartment front door she she will do this little growl on her way which like always reminds me of when you see uh, like an upset cartoon character in the super long oh, shot like going across like the whole length of the house like <laughs> like, like that is exactly what she seems like but yeah I, love it. I can tell that the strain uh, for her of always having to be on since I am always here is it's just starting to wear on she, her
2: she She's Joe like, Pesci oh, in, just... in Home Alone. She's just sort of <laughs> grunting and growling and making up words. Is she Yes. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That's completely, that's 100% this. her. It doesn't help that, of course, because of the quarantine, she hasn't been able to get her hair cut. So she's looking more and more like optimal Walt Whitman every single day. Um, nice. <clears> nice. Yeah. All right.
0: Ellen, you got a, your final
1: pick. My final pick. Okay. So I thought about taking for my final pick, <clears throat> use Facebook. Because I don't really, like, I have a Facebook account, but I haven't looked at it since November. And so uh, and really, like, my life is a lot better uh, not looking yes. at Facebook. Um, yes. But I don't know that that would bring me joy, and probably I'll just it try uh, to... Uh, let's s- go ahead, and let's just...
3: Right yeah, I think... some, and I,
1: I don't even mean, like, use it every day. I just mean, like, look at it once before no. the end of the quarantine. But I don't think I'm going to do that. So instead, um, I'm going to pick horseback riding. Uh, I would like to be able to ride a horse. Uh, How are you doing this in your apartment? I don't know, but I'm going to figure it out. You know, I've got nothing but time. Um, So I'll I'll just like watch a lot of YouTube videos. Um, Okay. Yeah. yeah, Okay. Um, Maybe I can rent a horse. I don't know. Maybe there's a place that I can actually... (laughs) <laughs> Go to that's like in the fresh air that I can um, that I can use somebody else's horse. Uh, okay. I I have I have ridden a horse on a couple of occasions, um, so this is not actually one of these skills that I'm starting from zero at. But I would not account myself a a competent horse rider, uh, and it would be really great. I'd like to be in all the movies where the ladies ride the horses, and so I'd love to be able to do that um, so that I can be in those movies. So maybe if I if I do all the other things, then I'll look at Facebook.
0: (laughs) I uh, I I I fell off a horse when (gasps) I was uh, uh, in I was at camp. I think I was eleven or twelve years old, and the horse was trotting, and I fell off the horse. And you know what they say that when you fall off the horse, you should get right back on. Uh, I did not, and I've never been on a horse since, and I never will be on a horse after that.
1: In stark contradiction to that saying, yes.
0: Well, no, I think that's why they have that saying. Yeah. That's why they're saying get right back on the horse. Because if you don't, you will never, ever, ever get back on a horse. And so I've never, ever, ever gotten back on a horse. Brandon, you've been on a horse?
2: Uh, Yeah, a couple times, but not like doing horse stuff, like maybe just walking a trail with someone holding the lead or something. I, I don't think that really counts as...
0: <laughs> it counts. But maybe it does. I mean, it I mean,
2: it it does mean it's, it's sort of like a a Disneyland ride except it's a living thing but I wasn't (laughs) I wasn't in control of the majestic beast like this wasn't it was just someone else some farmhand who was walking along like let's get this over with Um, so no I I don't have a lot of horse horse riding experience
0: would would you would you ride a horse would you I mean does that look fun to you Uh, it looks
2: painful but I, I like it looks fun when it's romanticized like when you're watching like a medieval movie and someone's doing it or like 1800s and you're, you things and do it like, and that's your, your method of like doing it now feels weird to like, I have normal city person clothes and the idea of like, I've got to change my outfit to go out to the desert somewhere where there's this, there's horse pens or whatever and, and ride a horse for a little bit. Like it just feels like this very weird escape thing um, that just wouldn't make any sense in my current life. So I have no desire, but I would wear this a much different time.
1: Yeah. But I do feel I, like I, our lives right now, they don't make any sense. And so we need something like going out and riding a horse.
2: That's true. I, it, it definitely, yeah, I, I, I wouldn't, if it, if Look, it was in go. my backyard now, I would get on it and be like, okay, this is a thing that I will do now. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, let's, let's be honest. We all might be riding horses at the end of this thing. I mean, let's, let's, that, that might be where we're headed. So, um, all right, Brandon, you have uh, your last pick.
2: Well, I really, I totally ran out of ideas, so I looked on, I think in this one, since none of my goals I'm even going to get started on, um, beyond this conversation, I'll I'll pick something that's achievable. Uh, I'm going to finish solving all the Where's Waldo p- uh, puzzles, um, and that's something we've been doing, <coughs> our family has, has been getting into them, and my daughter loves them, so we've been doing them every night at bedtime and digging through, but we just got the book of all of them, so there's like 35 or 40 left in there that... Um, I guess I would assume by the next three weeks, I think we'll have polished all those off. So I wanted something achievable. How
0: how many are in the book? How many are in the book
2: total? not sure. I mean, maybe 40, 50. I I can't really tell. I'm kind of looking at a book from a distance now, but um, some of them look like they're pretty tough, but when three of us are doing them, it takes us about 10 minutes and we, we knock through (laughs) them pretty quick. So I think we can do that. And I wanted to have some sense of accomplishment when this is all said and done. So
0: I'm, that's impressive i i think that's i didn't realize that there were only 40 or 50 where's waldo i just kind of assumed there were amazing. that's what
2: i thought too and then I, I think it's one guy who actually draws them all and then when you look at some of them these are so intricate the in depth that yeah. the drawings that i mean maybe he's like that's enough you guys find them and you guys get the gist but um <laughs> i think this is the complete book <laughs>
0: Do you do you think that guy like I mean obviously the idea of Where's Waldo is to is to find all these cool things and do that. but do you think that guy like deep down like is like I'm never gonna find this I mean do you think like he like really what his big goal is that for people to never ever solve one of his Where Wal- Where's Waldo's
2: Oh that's a good question I don't
0: I don't know what his motivation is beyond obviously selling them and making a lot of money but I mean is 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 the ultimate like? Does he consider the ultimate puzzle for it to be like at the end where somebody goes, man, that was tough, or where they're like, I just couldn't finish it. I just, I just never found that. There's, a t- I
2: mean, the toughest one. I think. Well, at least the ones that we found. There's one called Land of Waldo's, where everybody in the thing is Waldo, and you have to find the actual <laughs> Waldo because he he's missing a shoe, and so it's it takes a while. I mean, it's a it's a tough one, but it can be done. So I don't know if like that's his goal or. I don't know, maybe like a crossword, like does, I don't... does a crossword puzzle, what they want you to solve it or do they want you to not finish it?
0: I think they do want you to solve it because they will never hear the end of it if you don't, like on a crossword puzzle. But I don't know, like like I've always been convinced like those Magic Eye people, they want to make it really hard to, to like figure out what the heck it is. Like they want you to feel stupid. That's my view on the Magic Eye. Maybe that's because I can never do it. <laughs>
1: Well, I think that the two things. I think that the author of uh, the artist behind Where's Waldo probably does want it to be really hard so that you will look at his creation longer. Like, who wouldn't Uh, want that thing? You wouldn't want it to be too easy. Even if he's aware that, like, as you pointed out, the plot is kind of the same, i.e. person has a hard time finding Waldo and then plot point two, person (laughs) finds Waldo. Um, However, if, if he did not want... Uh, anybody to find them all he would have to do is not put a waldo in a picture
0: i wonder if he's ever been tempted
1: to do that. well and, see you guys are
0: getting
2: I... it's not just finding waldo it's finding all his various accoutrements like the, the other people of in course. his world like finding waldo is the easiest part of where's waldo It's now it's you got to find that stupid key and then it's really <laughs> the the dog bone you're really get lost right, in the weeds the there but yeah
0: that's what I'm saying. I'm saying I'm like like I wonder if he's ever been tempted to go. I'll show him. I'm just gonna like tell you that you have to find like this horseshoe, but it's not in there. You know, it just I, I don't know. I just don't know where the I just don't know the motivations of the Where's Waldo guy. That's what I'm saying. Well, I
1: had this reverie because I saw a uh, a video online somewhere. I don't know, probably Twitter, in which somebody had redrawn the little section where Waldo was so that there was no Waldo and then like pasted a new page in and then returned the book to the bookstore. <laughs> oh, I, I
0: saw that. I yeah. didn't see that. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. <laughs> All right. All right. With my fifth pick, I, uh, I don't even have a complete answer for my, my last pick. What I want to be able to do is I want to, at the end of this, to be able to memorize something absurd that people would just go, wow. You memorize that. I I want. When I was younger, uh, I could name every Oscar award-winning movie and the year that it that it won. Um, I had that uh, on my uh, resume actually. When I first started in in sports writing, I actually put on the resume that I could name every Oscar-winning movie. I think I could I could do it. I think until '95 uh, when Forrest Gump. I mean, uh, uh, yeah, '95. Would Forrest Gump won. Um And I used to be able to do it. I used to be able to like, people would like say, oh, 72. And I'd be like Godfather and I would be able to do it. I don't, like I have a few of them that still stay in my mind, but generally speaking, I can't do it any longer. Uh, but it was like, that was like, I guess everything that I'm trying to do is be able to, is, is be able to do like a party trick that could impress people. So I'd like to be able to memorize something like that. That was just like, really really cool like every Kentucky Derby winner or or like every something and I don't know what it is I've not figured out what the coolest thing to be able to memorize would be but I would like to be able to do that I would like to have memorized something uh, over this time period that people would be like man how did you how did you do that how did you memorize that so that's my goal
1: it's a good goal. It feels like the first step to, towards your goal is just determining what that list is, which might yeah, it, I got to figure it out. It might be harder than you think out. to to really settle on what whatever that's going to be.
0: Right, because even the Oscars winning movie, like even that, like that felt to me at the time that I did it, that felt to me like, oh yeah, but uh, boy, a whole lot of people don't care about the Oscars at all. So so I'd be like, oh yeah, I could, you know, they'd somebody be like, oh, you know, I remember when I was young, I saw Patton. I'm like, oh yeah, 1970 won the Oscar. And that would not actually get me in with them at all. So, uh, so I need something cooler. I need something cooler than that to 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 be able to memorize. So, that is my fifth pick. So we are through it. I believe we are now in the middle of the longest podcast ever. We did uh, which it. Is amazing. Which is amazing because nothing is happening. So what? I don't even know what we're talking about. Nothing is going on. Um, but it is time for one last meaningless thing.
1: It's fun. sports and we draft things we know like how beaches are terrible places to go no hot fruit for michael no diet coke for joe the podcast whoa it's one last whoa so uh alan would you like to start i would be happy to start um, so, yes. I actually had a different one last meaningless thing that I was going to share, but uh, there's something, there was one thing that I was really itching to say at some point on this podcast, and so I'm going to use this opportunity to say it, um, which is that the last time that the two of you podcasted together, you mentioned that you might spend the entirety of the, of the COVID 19 sports blackout telling Zach Granke stories. Um, and so, as the only person on this podcast who has not met Zach Granke even slightly, clearly my duty is to tell a Zach Granke story. Um, sure. I just want to second this notion as, as deeply appropriate. Um, I mean, I love Zach Granke for one, but putting personal preferences aside, um, as someone who showed up to spring training on the last possible day, Granke is is a poster child for social distancing, and two... Uh, he was into hand-washing before it was cool. So for any of the um, 8 million Fiendish podcast devotees who don't know this story, um, I looked it up. Uh, Craig Calcaterra tells us that uh, Don Mattingly had called a team meeting in 2013 when the Dodgers were struggling a bit before clinching the NL West. And uh, there was a moment of silence. And then Granke said, I've got something to say, uh, which was unusual uh, as I think most people can guess and so then he says and now I am quoting directly some of you guys have been doing the number two and not washing your hands it's not good I noticed it happening even earlier today so if you guys could just be better about that that would be great and then he sat down and reportedly the whole team took a second to figure out whether or not he was serious. And when they realized that he was, they laughed and it loosened them up and they won the grain game. So just "Sat cranky, Sat cranky for every mood is my uh, one last meaningless thing.
2: That is a 100% true story. Um, he then repeated it the next spring, which was my first, my first year there, we had a team meeting. This was the team meeting from hell. In that spring training, it was, I've never seen anything like there were three separate fights in this meeting. Um, It was an absolute disaster of a meeting. And at one point someone ran across the room, all the names were removed and actually like got into Zach's face and you have never seen someone not care more about something happening to them or an (laughs) eminent physical threat. Um, That backs down and sure enough to end that meeting. And this wasn't like a bit he's doing it because like, if you know, like as Joe knows, I'm like, they're not bits. They're just very real things in his head. Uh, he does yes. the same thing. He goes, "Hey, I like." It was like none of the things that had happened before. He just literally dropped that in again. Like <laughs> I saw someone today using the bathroom and not washing their hands. Uh, it's gross and it needs to stop. And he went back to it like this is an, just the, an addendum to the meeting. He wanted to add on and threw it It was. It's so jaw-droppingly funny in the moment considering who's saying it and the message and, and all the other nonsense that's happened. It was fantastic.
0: Oh my gosh. That's so great. That's so great. By the way, I want to also commend you, uh, Alan, for that little moment uh, that sounded like we were in church where you said, as Craig Calcaterra tells us, <laughs> I mean, it felt very, like, <laughs> it was, I thought that was, I thought that was excellent. All right, Brandon, your one last meaningless thing.
2: Um, looking outside, it's about the, eighth or ninth day in a row of perfect, clear sunshine, barely any clouds, being about 80 degrees, like how important it is to have a little bit of like weather variability um, for just like, (laughs) I guess mental health or just the sake of like, um, the amount that I absolutely love, like a full cloudy or rainy day in Arizona is, is really like, it's shocking. Um, I, I would think it's something like when you're, when you're in Seattle and all of a sudden the sun's out for a day, like how great that is. I just love the ability to see like different weather at times. So it's not the same thing every single day. I think that's a really important thing. That's not important.
0: Right. I totally agree. I totally agree. I don't like, like having 12 straight rainy days also stinks like any, just it's variability. Just want, I just want that. I want the variety. All right. Um, my one last meaningless thing is we as a family have uh, been doing all kinds of things to try to sort of um, get through all of this in, in family stuff i mentioned. Uh, I think on the last podcast that we started a bad movie. Uh, it's not bad movie Friday since the girls have gone back to uh, online school. Um, we watched wild, wild West last week was our bad movie Friday. And uh, it is, it is horrendous. I, I will have the review up shortly. But we lasted 43 minutes uh, for Wild Wild West, but it was it was uh, it was it was astonishingly bad, knowing full well that it was going to be bad. It was astonishingly bad. But we've done other things as well. We watched uh, other kinds of movies and shows. But we also started watching uh, the uh, Lego uh, TV uh, on the uh, reality TV show that Will Arnett hosts, where people build Lego things. it has brought us just utter delight. It is just, it is, it has been one of those rare things that has made us very, very happy. Uh, I don't even know why, like the concept of the show is very odd, even for a reality TV show. I mean, they, you know, it's, it's not like, like in, you've seen like versions of this, like with baking where like you have to have build me a whole city of, you know, cakes or something but but if you're saying like build me a whole city in lego like that's what lego is for so like that doesn't it doesn't feel like as as organic um and yet it has been it has been a joy and we've watched it um and we are now all the way caught up uh, we binge watched it so we are now caught up on the lego show so i don't know if this will do this for your family but my meaningless suggestion this week is if uh if you feel like it uh catch the lego thing it's on hulu Uh, and and still going on and I I find it to be delightful
1: Uh, I will definitely look that up my favorite reality show is Top Chef which thank God has the new season has started to air um, in this time of great need Uh, so yeah Eric and I uh, desperately look forward to Friday which is when we can see it on our like streaming service Uh, and it's yeah it's like the holy day of the week oh my God it's Top Chef day it's excellent
0: excellent there you go All right. Well, guys, uh, this really is the longest podcast we've ever done. Um, Thank you. Could not thank you enough. So, yeah.
1: So, Brandon, (laughs) thanks.
2: Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Alan.
1: Thank you, Alan. Thank you.